0: A judge today orders Donald Trump to pay $355 million in a civil fraud trial. The New York Times says that could wipe out Trump's entire stockpile of cash. Our story is coming up on this Friday, February 16th. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good afternoon, I'm Lisa Mullins also coming up. Israeli troops have taken over a main hospital in southern Gaza looking for Hamas fighters and the remains of Israeli hostages. The world reacts to the death of a leading critic of the Kremlin. Joe Biden says Alexei Navalny was everything Russian President Vladimir Putin is not. And Republican presidential candidate Nikki Haley is beyond stepping up verbal attacks on Vice President Kamala Harris.
1: You know what should send a chill up every
0: person's spine? The thought of a President Kamala Harris. These stories and
2: Wall Street numbers are coming up. It's 401. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Nora Rahm. A New York judge today ordered former President Trump to pay $355 million for civil fraud. He had inflated the value of his properties to obtain more favorable loan terms. He's also banned from serving as an officer or director of any New York company for three years. Trump's two older sons, Donald Trump Jr. and Eric, were fined an additional $4 million each. The judge determined the Trump organization created more than 500 false valuations to inflate the company's net worth by billions of dollars. Vice President Harris delivered a rebuke of former President Trump's worldview today without explicitly mentioning him in a speech to world leaders in Munich. As NPR's Asma Khalid reports from Munich, this comes at a time when many in Europe are feeling uncertain about the U.S. commitment to the world.
3: Harris said she knows that many people in Europe are asking questions about the future of American leadership, and these are also questions Americans must ask themselves.
4: History has also shown us, if we only look inward, we could not defeat... Threats from outside. Isolation is not insulation.
3: She warned that isolation ultimately would weaken America. Her comments come as Republican leadership in the House has essentially blocked additional funding for Ukraine.
2: Asma Khalid, NPR News. World leaders, exiled Russians, and Kremlin watchers around the world are reacting with anger and disbelief to the death of Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny. As NPR's Jackie Northam reports, the activist died in a remote Russian prison where he was serving a lengthy sentence.
1: There's been widespread praise for the 47-year-old Navalny, who was a fierce critic of Russian President Vladimir Putin. German Chancellor Olaf Scholz said Navalny stood up for democracy and freedom in Russia and apparently paid for it with his life. Like many others, Vice President Kamala Harris and Secretary of State Antony Blinken squarely blamed Putin for Navalny's death. Polish Prime Minister Donald Tusk said, Alexei, we will never forget you and we'll never forgive them. Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau called Putin a monster. Others, like NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg, urged patience until an investigation was completed. Jackie Northam, NPR News, Washington.
2: President Biden said he's not surprised, but he is outraged by the death. He put the blame directly on Russian President Vladimir Putin. President Biden visits the Ohio town of East Palestine today, the site of a train derailment more than a year ago. It caused an explosive fire and spilled millions of gallons of hazardous materials and pollutants. Biden has been criticized for not visiting sooner. This is NPR News from Washington. And this is
0: 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. Massachusetts Congressman Bill Keating is blaming the Russian government for the death of a harsh critic of Russian President Vladimir Putin. Russian officials say Alexei Navalny died today at a penal colony in Siberia. Keating says he hopes Navalny's death is a wake-up call to American politicians who advocate authoritarian rule.
5: I have colleagues that are pro-Putin, that are admiring him, that are saying things uh, very positive things about him and that's the direction it should go here. I hope that some of those words stick in their throats today.
0: Keating is the ranking member of a House Foreign Affairs subcommittee. He says the U.S. must send a message to Putin by passing an aid package for Ukraine. That's a sentiment echoed by Congresswoman and Minority Whip Catherine Clark. She said on social media today that now is not the time for us to waver in our support of Ukraine. Prosecutors have dropped the domestic violence charge against Bruins forward Milan Lucic. He was accused of assaulting his wife in November during an argument. The Suffolk County DA's office has it dropped the charge after she refused to testify against him and the judge refused to allow her 911 call for help into evidence. Lucic remains on indefinite leave from the Bruins. The Menaman Regional Vocational Technical School District has a new superintendent Last night, the school committee voted to hire the assistant superintendent of Situas Schools, Heidi Driscoll. Minuteman has been operating with an interim head after the previous superintendent resigned amid controversy over her leadership style and after she let go a popular principal. Minuteman has students from nine member communities, including Arlington, Dover, Lexington and Needham. And state wildlife officials are encouraging people to get outside this weekend and count birds. This weekend is part of a global effort called the Great Backyard Bird Count, and it's exactly how it sounds. People are encouraged to report to the Mass Audubon Society the number and types of birds they see around their home or in the neighborhoods. John Herbert is Society's Director of Bird Conservation. He says it's a good time to check on which species are migrating through the region.
5: We have birds that don't breed here, but they spend the winters here. So it's, it's good for us to know where they are, uh, what habitat they're using. and better protect that habitat, and better protect uh, these these birds.
0: The count will last through Monday. 38 degrees now in the Boston area. Nice to have the sunshine today because it's taking tomorrow off. Clouds should start to move in this evening. And tonight, overnight lows about 27. Tomorrow, mainly gray skies, breezy only in the mid-30s. Maybe a few shots of sunshine here and there. Sunday, we should have a mix of clouds and sun again in the mid-30s. And then the holiday Monday, sunnier, a little bit milder, right about 40 degrees. It's 4.07.
6: Support for NPR comes from NPR stations. Other contributors include the Lodestar Foundation, inspired by the principle that helping someone else less fortunate is a path to a happier, healthier, and more meaningful life. Learn more at lodestarfoundation.org.
7: From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Juana Summers. Alexei Navalny, the
8: outspoken critic of Russian President Vladimir Putin and his brand of totalitarian rule, has died at the age of 47. He was last seen yesterday during a court appearance where he appeared to be in good spirits in video posted by the independent Russian news agency SOTA.
7: According to the Russian Penitentiary Service, Navalny died in the penal colony where he was held after losing consciousness following a walk. In a few minutes, we'll have reactions from President Biden and the United Nations to his death. First, from Moscow, and Pierre's Charles Maines has this look back at Navalny's legacy.
9: Alexei Navalny was often called President Vladimir Putin's fiercest critic and with good reason.
7: Alexei Navalny!
9: more than a decade, Navalny built a national following with impassioned campaigns that channeled public outrage over corruption and violence in the Kremlin and promoted a vision that Russians could one day live differently.
10: He is uh, the only real politician in the Russian political uh, field trying uh, to struggle for power.
9: That's Andrei Kolesnikov of the Carnegie-Russia Eurasia Center speaking in 2020. Kolesnikov has said Navalny stood out from a crowded group of opposition figures by reducing Russian politics to a simple dichotomy. Putin versus Navalny, Navalny versus Putin. A lawyer by training, Navalny first rose to prominence as an online muckraker who exposed corruption schemes among Russia's state-owned companies. He soon emerged as the breakout political star of anti-government street protests in 2011 as Putin was eyeing a third presidential term.
11: Is last?
9: Navalny's powerful voice, good looks, and readiness to laugh off threats and jail time won him a huge following, especially among younger Russians. In 2013, he took almost a third of the vote in the Moscow mayoral election, despite being blacklisted by state media and hounded by prosecutors. Kolesnikova says the Kremlin took note.
10: And after that, Kremlin doesn't allow Navalny to participate in any legal activity, in any elections.
9: Instead, Navalny sought political legitimacy from the outside in. He expanded his presence nationally, opening field offices with his Anti-Corruption Foundation and launching a sleek online media operation via social media, and YouTube in particular.
12: In 2018,
9: he led a shadow campaign to challenge Putin for the presidency, banned from the ballot, but presenting a starkly different vision for Russia, as he told NPR in an interview at the time.
0: It's simple. I want to live in a normal
13: country and refuse to accept any talk about Russia being doomed to being a bad, poor, or servile country. I want to live here, and I can't tolerate the injustice that for many people has become routine.
9: Navalny's informal style and fondness for pop culture were central to his appeal In a sharp contrast to the Kremlin leader, 24 years his senior. When Putin tapped into older Russians' grievances over the demise of the Soviet Union, Navalny channeled a younger generation's hope that Russia could break free from that repressive past, says independent analyst Fyodor Krashenikov. For them, Putin is the old man that they're sick of, because he's been on television their entire lives. And that's why they gravitated towards Navalny. He was younger, more energetic, and more reflected their worldview. Putin famously never mentioned Navalny's name in public, referring to him dismissively with terms like that blogger or the person to which you're referring. Even a state media propagandist relentlessly attacked Navalny as a fascist and a Western stooge. Meanwhile, Navalny led investigations seen by millions of viewers on YouTube, excoriated Kremlin insiders for corruption, making powerful enemies along the way.
14: Russia's most prominent opposition leader, has been poisoned.
9: In 2020, Navalny collapsed aboard a flight in Siberia, a victim of a poisoning attack. He was on a plane flying back to Moscow when he fell unconscious. He survived, barely, thanks to medical treatment in Germany. From there, he also launched another investigation, this time uncovering the identity of the FSB assassins that had tried to kill him using the nerve agent Novichok. It all sounded like something out of a movie, and soon there was one.
13: And the Oscar goes to... Navalny.
9: Navalny, the documentary, took an Oscar in 2023. By then, Navalny was Putin's most famous prisoner. He'd returned home two years earlier, insisting a Russian politician who hoped to leave had to live in Russia, only to be sentenced to decades in prison on a slew of suspect charges. Yet even from jail, he remained a relevant voice and a thorn in the Kremlin's side. From behind bars, he released his most popular video, a film that took viewers inside a secret palace on the Black Sea that Navalny claimed had been built by Putin for more than $1
15: billion.
9: And when Putin announced the full-scale invasion of Ukraine in February of 2022, Navalny castigated the Kremlin leader as a madman dragging the country backwards once again. Our miserable, exhausted motherland needs to be saved, said Navalny in social media posts released through his lawyers. All it took, he argued, was for more Russians to raise their voices and say they wanted something different. It was the latest distillation of Navalny's vision for Russia, at once simple and stubbornly out of reach in an era characterized by repression and fear. Navalny called it the happy Russia of the future. Charles Maines, NPR News, Moscow.
7: The news of Navalny's death came as a shock to many around the world. President Biden says he will hold Russia responsible for the death of the Kremlin critic. And Pierre Michel Kellerman
4: has more. President Biden says Navalny was everything Russian President Vladimir Putin is not.
16: He was brave. He was principled. He was dedicated to building a Russia where the rule of law existed and of where it applied to everybody. Navalny believed in that Russia, that Russia. He knew it was a cause worth fighting for, and obviously even dying for.
4: NAVALNY'S wife, Yulia, was at a security conference in Munich when Russian prison authorities said her husband had died. I want Putin and all those who surround him to know that they will be held responsible for what they did to my country, my family, and my husband, she said, urging the world to unite and fight what she called this evil. The U.N. secretary general is calling for a credible investigation, and the U.N.'s Human Rights Office says Russia should stop persecuting its critics. One human rights activist in exile, Natalia Arno, says she will have a hard time speaking about Navalny in past tense. He
7: is a hero. Uh, He is a symbol of um, Russian resistance. Heroes don't die.
17: Heroes motivate us to do more things
4: she was speaking at the US Institute of Peace along with other Russian human rights activists who point out that Navalny always said that his death would be a sign that his movement is strong and Putin's regime is afraid Michelle Kellerman NPR News The State Department Senator
8: Lindsey Graham has long been one of the Senate's most vocal defense hawks. For years, he was a fixture at the annual Munich Security Conference. But this year, Graham decided to skip that meeting for the first time in his career to go to the border. Here he is earlier today in Eagle Pass, Texas, with his fellow South Carolina Republican Senator Tim
18: Scott. Until we regain control of our border, it's going to be very difficult to help other countries. So the national security problems associated with a southern border in disarray, to me, deserve my time and attention.
8: Senators Scott and Graham spoke with NPR congressional correspondent Claudia Grisales just after their border visit. Claudia joins us now from Eagle Pass. Hi there. Hi, Juana. So, Claudia, start by just explaining to us. I mean, Graham and Scott are two senators who do not come from a border state. Why did they feel the need to travel there to Eagle Pass today?
19: Right. It was such a split screen to have them here at the border while many of their colleagues headed to Europe. Eagle Pass has become a frequent stopping point for Republican lawmakers taking trips here. Texas Governor Greg Abbott was here today for one of his regular press conferences. And earlier this week, Senators Graham and Scott both voted against a bipartisan border security bill and a national security aid bill that would have directed help to Ukraine, Israel, and other partners. And Graham's vote in particular was a major departure for him. So was his decision to skip the Munich conference for this border visit. He says he's been there every year since it got started, and Tim Scott himself was going to be there for the first time this year. But they both said that the focus needs to be on home right now, meaning the border.
18: Don't be surprised if the American people look inward when their country's on fire. You know, it's pretty hard to penetrate the idea that we're on fire here at home. The economy is, inflation's high, crime's up, the border's broken.
19: Yes, and there you hear Graham talking about the crisis that he and Scott saw in person today. And so there's a significant shift in the Republican Party when it comes to national security. Some would argue it's isolationist, and that's backed by former President Trump. Graham has been an advocate for Ukraine funding and a very vocal critic of Vladimir Putin. Many Democrats criticize his absence from the Munich conference this week as a sign of loyalty to Trump. And what
8: does Senator Graham
19: have to say about that? Well, he said he's making a statement by being at the border. He believes America needs to be critical in terms of its stability for the world. And he also mentioned Alexei Navalny, the Russian opposition leader who we understand died today. And he says he believes Navalny was murdered by Putin and that Putin is a war criminal. But he also went on to say that the breakdown of the border is larger than any threat he sees from Europe today. Claudia,
8: you mentioned former President Trump earlier, and I just want to ask you, how much is he a factor here?
19: He is a huge factor. I've asked both senators about this, and both said they've spoken with Trump recently before this trip, and it was really interesting to hear the answer from Scott, who himself was very recently a presidential candidate for Republicans, and he's since dropped out of the race and endorsed Trump.
16: President Trump just happens to be right. The, he reinforces the position of the American people.
19: And Graham says he disagrees when Trump says Congress should not do anything on this until after the election. He's still holding out hope for a solution, but it's a very difficult situation and a huge reminder of what influence Trump has on the Republican Party to this day.
8: NPR congressional correspondent Claudia Grisala reporting from Eagle Pass, Texas. Claudia, thank you. Thank you.
0: You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90 boy Nine WBUR. In Boston, some slipping and sliding on Wall Street today. The Dow fell nearly four-tenths of a percent, ending a five-week win streak. S&P lost nearly a half percent, still closed above the 5,000 mark, and the Nasdaq dropped more than eight-tenths of a percent. Boston city planners are giving the green light for developers to replace the star market near Fenway Park with an 11-story building. The Boston Planning and Development Agency yesterday signed off on the plans to turn the grocery store and a neighboring abandoned gas station on Boylston Street into laboratory space. Plans include a spot that's eventually slated to become a Boston Public Library branch. Star Market is moving to a nearby
20: location. This is WBUR. The forecast is coming up. WBUR supporters include Scrub-A-Dub Car Wash, cleaning cars since 1966, with 22 New England locations. Learn more about Scrub-A-Dub Unlimited at scrubadub.com.
0: Boston's major sports teams are off tonight. Bruins will be on Garden Nice tomorrow afternoon to host the L.A. Kings. Celts are off for the NBA All-Star break. The game is Sunday evening in Indianapolis. Forward Jason Tatum will be in the starting lineup. This is WBUR.
20: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Executive PhD Program in Business at Bentley. Three years, part-time, for experienced professionals seeking data research skills. Info session on February 21st. a lovely
0: day today should have clouds around tonight though lows about the mid-20s wind should make it feel a lot colder tomorrow partly to mostly cloudy in the mid-30s sunday mainly sunny staying in the mid-30s and then president's day monday should be bright a little bit milder close to 40 degrees
21: support for npr comes from this station and from the kauffman foundation providing access to opportunities that help people achieve financial stability, upward mobility, and economic prosperity, regardless of race, gender, or geography. Kaufman.org, And from the Walton Family Foundation, working to create access to opportunity for people and communities by tackling tough social and environmental problems. More information is at waltonfamilyfoundation.org. This is NPR.
7: This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. Israeli troops have taken over a main hospital in southern Gaza looking for Hamas fighters and the remains of Israeli hostages. This, as a potential Israeli operation, looms in the most crowded part of Gaza. Let's get the latest from NPR's Daniel Estrin in Tel Aviv. And Daniel, start with just what we know about what the situation is at this hospital in southern Gaza.
11: Yeah, this is the Nasser Medical Complex in the city of Khan Yunis. Israeli troops have taken over that hospital in the last few days. It's a hospital that NPR's producer Anas Baba visited just two months ago. He saw families crowding the hospital grounds there. They were sheltering there. And now Gaza health officials are saying that Israeli troops have evacuated many patients and staff to a building uh, on the grounds that did not have proper medical equipment. They say that hospital generators stopped functioning, five ICU patients they claim have died because their oxygen ran out. And Doctors Without Borders says the hospital was shelled and that uh, people inside were killed and wounded. NPR's producer Abu Bakr Bashir uh, happened to speak with an ambulance crew member today from Gaza's health ministry. He's been in touch with his colleagues at the hospital who said Israeli bulldozers had raised an area of the hospital complex. Uh, he said a main sewage line had been hit and sewage had flooded inside the hospital. He also said... Babies had been relocated to a building that didn't have incubators. And our producer was speaking to this ambulance crew member, Ahmed Al Astal, as he was driving in an ambulance in the city of Khan Yunus. And suddenly, on the phone, they had to turn around. And here's what it sounded like.
22: <laughs> So there he's
11: telling his colleague, go back, go back, go back. The army is there. There are injured people there.
7: it oh, sounds just absolutely chaotic. Tell me more about the why. What? Why does Israel say it needs to take over this hospital?
11: Well, Israel's army says it is looking for Hamas operatives in the hospital and looking for the bodies of Israeli hostages. Uh, that might be held there. Israel says it has not yet found any remains of hostages. It says hostages had been held there in the past. Um, Israel also says it's found medicines with the hostages' names on them. Uh, Now Israel says it is not forcing people to leave this hospital. It says it's delivered fuel and a new generator to the hospital so that it can continue providing medical care. I was at a briefing today with Israel's defense minister Yoav Gallant who spoke about this operation at the hospital. He said more than 7000 Palestinians have left the hospital grounds. He says troops have arrested about 70 militants in the hospital including a few dozen he said participated in Hamas's October 7th attack on Israel. But Mary Louise this is a pattern Um, We see Israel taking over main hospitals as troops sweep from north to south Gaza. Mm. Um, Israel says Hamas, you know, bases itself in hospitals.
7: Daniel, just briefly update us on where things stand with Israel's plans to send troops into Rafah. That is, of course, where more than half of the people in Gaza are sheltering. What's the update on how likely it is when it would happen?
11: President Biden today said he doesn't expect a major operation there while there are talks ongoing for a temporary ceasefire and a potential uh, deal to release Hamas's hostages. But it might happen eventually. Israel's defense minister today told us that Israel is thoroughly planning this operation there. And Egypt is worried. A security official there told us that Egypt is building a buffer zone to contain a potential influx of Palestinians Mm -hmm. if they burst through the border.
7: And Pierre's Daniel Estrin in Tel Aviv. Thank you.
11: You're welcome.
8: The Department of Veterans Affairs is scrambling in the wake of a debacle in its home loan program that left many veterans unable to pay their mortgages. After NPR broke the story last year, the VA halted thousands of foreclosures across the country. And now lawmakers are leaning on the VA to fix what's broken because many veterans and their families are still in trouble. Correspondents Quill Lawrence and Chris Arnold report.
6: The director of the VA's loan program, John Bell, was on Capitol Hill yesterday trying to explain how the VA is going to fix this mess.
23: First and foremost, we are looking for a solution to be able to help 40,000 borrowers uh, uh, stay for off foreclosure.
24: But lawmakers on the House Veterans Affairs Committee got frustrated with Bell's answers. Mr. Mr. Bell,
23: you didn't
5: answer that question. And you're really starting to irritate me. And as my friend the chairman said, we need answers today.
24: That was Wisconsin Republican Derek Van Orden and California Democrat Mike Levin, who both praised the home loan as maybe the nation's most important veterans benefit. The VA home loan is part of the GI Bill. And since the end of World War II, it's been giving veterans a leg up into the middle class, like Iraq war vet Edmund Garcia. Uh,
25: I did four years uh, before I was shot and wounded, but it was actually hit me an ankle and uh, ended my career.
6: Garcia is first-generation American. His parents are from Honduras. He was the first in his family to go to college, and joining the military was supposed to be part of that American dream story. His injury wasn't life-threatening, but he's had 10 surgeries in the years since.
25: You know, aside from the chronic pain, uh, I'm I'm doing okay. You know, I have my good days and I have my bad days.
6: Garcia and his wife were able to buy a house for themselves and their four kids in Rocheron, Texas, with a loan backed by the VA. When they lost work during COVID, a VA program allowed them to defer mortgage payments. But then the VA scuttled its own program while tens of thousands of vets were still in the middle of it. Vets like Garcia
24: got stranded. Suddenly he owed all the missed payments at once, upwards of
25: $20,000. I'm like, how am I going to come up with $22,000? You know, what am I supposed to do? I got four kids. Your options say here that I can do a short sale or deed and lieu. Loo- I'm going to lose my home. I said, what am I going to do with my kids?
24: Garcia says he was having this conversation with his mortgage company while he was in his car waiting to pick up his 16-year-old daughter
25: from school. I deal with PTSD, I deal with anxiety, and, you know, my heart is beating through my chest. And by the time my daughter is in the car, I have a panic attack right there in front of her. And she's asking, Dad, are you okay? The VA says it's working on a fix. That's what the hearing was
6: about this week. It says it's going to roll out a new affordable loan modification option for the vets who got left facing foreclosure. But in the meantime, veterans tell NPR that their mortgage companies have been pushing them into much more costly loan modifications with today's higher interest rates.
24: And that feels like a bait and switch. The vets were told before they took part in this forbearance program that their payments wouldn't go up. Garcia's old mortgage rate was 2.4 percent. Now his lender wants him to accept a 7.1 percent loan, which would raise his payments by $700 a month.
25: So this is my my dilemma, is that you guys have put a financial gun to my head saying sign this or else. That's, the, that, that's what you're doing.
6: Congressman Mike Levin asked about that exact problem at the hearing. What if the veterans already
5: signed up for a, a higher interest rate loan modification? What are you going to do to make these veterans whole?
23: So that, that is why we were, uh, as another part of the loss mitigation waterfall, we wanted to place VASPA. The-
6: that was the VA's John Bell. And the long and short of it is that the VA is still working on it.
24: Meanwhile, Edmund Garcia just wants the deal he signed up for.
25: They said that they were going to keep my payments comparable to what I was paying. And I want them to honor it. They told veterans that they were going to help them in their time of need. I want them to honor it. Chris Arnold and Quill Lawrence,
24: NPR News.
7: This is
0: NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR coming to City Space tonight at 7 o'clock, a Valentine's Day edition of the Mortified podcast featuring true stories of teenage angst, told live by the adults who went through it. Tickets are at WBUR.org slash events. In the forecast, nice to have the sunshine today because it's likely taking tomorrow off. Clouds start to move in this evening, and tonight, overnight lows about 27. Tomorrow should be mainly gray, maybe a few shots of sunshine, breezy only in the mid-30s. Sunday, we should have a mix of clouds and sunshine together. Highs again in the
26: mid-30s. WBOR supporters include Boston's How Do You See the World Experience with the Maparium Globe. Visit and explore stories about global progress. Tickets at SeeTheWorld.com And Bridgewater State University, ranked 18th in Massachusetts on the Wall Street Journal's 2024 Best Colleges in America list, bridgew.edu.
9: I'm Tom Papa filling in for Peter Sagal. On last week's Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, Adam Burke reminded us of the things that bring us together.
13: One thing that we as a society can all agree upon is that we
9: all hate minds. We'll be speaking up nice and loud as we discuss the big stories of the week and talk to the legendary rock band Sleater Kenny on this week's news quiz
27: from NPR. Saturday and now Sunday at 10 on 90.9 WBUR. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. Russia's prison agency says one of Vladimir Putin's fiercest critics has died in the arctic penal colony where he was serving a 19-year sentence. Officials say Alexei Navalny fell ill today after a walk and suddenly lost consciousness. Medical officials failed to revive him. Here's White House National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan responding to the news.
22: tragedy, and given the Russian government's uh, long and sordid history of doing harm to its opponents, it raises real and obvious questions about what happened here. But I'll withhold further comments on it until we learn more.
27: The 47-year-old opposition leader crusaded against Russian government corruption and staged massive protests against the Kremlin. Navalny survived being poisoned, likely by Putin's Kremlin, before being arrested again and eventually imprisoned. His death comes less than a month before Putin is expected to be reelected for another six years. West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin says he will not run for president this year. As NPR's Elena Moore tells us, the decision comes after months of speculation over whether the centrist Democrat would run as a third-party candidate.
3: In remarks at West Virginia University, Manchin said he, quote, will not be involved in a presidential run. After more than two terms as a Democrat representing a largely red state, Manchin is also choosing not to run for re-election in the U.S. Senate. He made that decision last fall and has been weighing his next steps since. He's been on a listening tour with his organization Americans Together and has appeared with the group No Labels, which is exploring a third-party ticket. Manchin did not endorse a candidate in his announcement, raising questions about whether the outgoing senator would eventually back President Biden.
27: Elena Moore, NPR News. Well, stocks finished higher across the board on Wall Street, trimming some of its earlier losses. The Dow gained 145 points. This is NPR.
0: This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Stewart Healthcare is trying to sell some of its assets, but the company still might not be able to continue to operate its nine hospitals in the state. That's according to officials who have met with Stewart executives to talk about its plans. WBUR's Deborah Becker has more.
1: Congressman Stephen Lynch says he met with Stewart executives yesterday and they told him they have an infusion of money to keep some hospitals running. But he told WBUR's Radio Boston the company did not deviate from its initial statements to his staff that Stewart will leave Massachusetts.
28: That statement that they intend to exit the
5: Massachusetts health care market has not been retracted. Stewart is, is trying to find buyers or find other configurations that will allow these hospitals to continue in operation.
1: Stewart has said it does not plan to close any Massachusetts hospitals, but there could be a transfer of ownership. State officials are monitoring patient care at Stewart Hospitals. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Deborah Becker.
0: Two more proposed ballot questions in Massachusetts are facing legal challenges. One would phase out a lower minimum wage specifically for tipped workers. It would also give businesses the power to require workers to pool their tips. Those trying to block the ballot measure say it's because it concerns two separate issues. The question is invalid. Another suit is intended to block a question that would allow Uber and Lyft drivers to unionize. Opponents claim the measure has too many issues for a single ballot question. A jury today convicted the man accused of killing a Weymouth police officer and a bystander in 2018. Emmanuel Lopes was found guilty of killing Weymouth Police Sergeant Michael Chesna and 77-year-old Vera Adams. This is the second jury to hear the case, the first to ended in a mistrial after three, three weeks of deliberations lopes will be sentenced next month it's 434
26: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by The Huntington, presenting Stand Up If You're Here Tonight, a man-seeking audience, a one-man, one-audience show, 264 Huntington Ave, now through March 3rd. And Brookline Bank, where financial solutions are crafted to the needs of your business and delivered with a hands-on approach committed to your success. Learn more at brooklinebank.com, member FDIC. Should have increasing clouds
0: overnight tonight, windy down around the mid-20s. Tomorrow, the mid-30s with clouds, maybe a little sunshine, the remote chance of flurries. Sunday, some sunshine competing with the clouds, windy again, highs in the mid-30s again. 38 degrees now in Boston at 435.
21: Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution for businesses of all sizes to attract, interview, and hire candidates, all from a single platform. Learn more at indeed.com slash NPR. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. This is NPR
7: on a Friday. It's all things considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly.
8: And I'm Juana Summers. A New York judge ordered former President Donald Trump and his companies to pay nearly $355 million for inflating the value of his properties and other assets. Trump's sons, Eric and Don Jr., were ordered to pay $4 million each, and all three are temporarily barred from running a company in the state of New York. NPR's Andrea Bernstein has been following this case and joins us now to go over the penalty and accusations hi there
29: hey Juana I mean let's just start with the
8: money here how did the judge arrive at that number
29: so basically, New York State Supreme Court Judge Arthur N. Goran rejected every single defense Trump and his team presented in months of testimony. The judge said the law only requires that defendants intended to defraud. Not that they were victims, not that anyone relied on his false statements. The judge said it didn't hold water, that it was Trump's accountant's fault. Indeed, the judge found almost all of the Trump witnesses not to be credible. And that when Donald Trump testified, his, quote, refusal to answer the questions directly, or in some cases at all, severely compromised his credibility. The judge found New York Attorney General Letitia James proved her case that Trump lied over and over for decades about everything from the size of his apartment, it was one third as large as he claimed, to his ability to sell Mar-a-Lago as a private residence. He cannot.
8: One of the major witnesses who testified is Michael Cohen, and as many may remember,
29: he pleaded guilty to lying. So given that fact, how did the judge evaluate his testimony? During the trial, Cohen described how Trump indicated to him he wanted him to, quote, reverse-engineer values to get them to what Trump wanted them to be. Cohen was really the only former employee who said it in exactly this way, and what Judge N. describing Cohen's testimony, described as Trump's mob voice. The defense really leaned into the fact that Cohen has pleaded guilty to lying to Congress and to banks and accused Cohen of actually perjuring himself in this trial. But Judge Gorin rejected that, writing, quote, a less forgiving fact finder might have concluded differently, might not have believed a single word of a convicted perjurer. This fact finder does not believe that pleading guilty to perjury means you can never tell the truth. Michael Cohen told the truth. Interesting.
8: OK, the attorney general asked for $340 million. So help us with the math here. How did the judge get to $355 million?
29: So to be clear, this is not a fine. New York law requires you to give back to the state whatever ill-gotten gains you made by committing persistent fraud. $170 million is the cash saved by lying to Deutsche Bank in loan applications. $127 million is for the extra profit he made by selling the lease for the Trump Hotel in Washington, D.C., and 60 million is for extra money that he got for selling a New York golf course that he used this money to undergird. The judge called the Trump's lack of remorse for all this, quote, "bordering on the pathological." So in all of this did former President Trump win anything here? Yep. Yeah. The judge backed off an earlier decision to cancel Trump's business licenses and instead banned Trump from running his business and seeking loans from New York banks for three years because the judge said there is now sufficient oversight in place. Trump's lawyer, Alina Habba, issued a statement saying, this verdict is a manifest injustice, plain and simple. It is the culmination of a multi-year, politically fueled witch hunt that was designed to take down Donald Trump. Habba says they will appeal this verdict, and nothing will be final until it goes to New York's highest court, the Court of Appeals. NPR's Andrea Bernstein, thank you.
7: Thank you. Concerns about President Biden's age are putting pressure on Vice President Kamala Harris as they run for re-election. Republican presidential hopeful Nikki Haley has been highlighting those worries on the campaign trail. Here she is in South Carolina over the weekend.
1: It's either going to be me or it's going to be Kamala Harris.
7: As Haley campaigns ahead of her home state's primary, the former South Carolina governor has been stepping up attacks on the vice president, as NPR Sarah McCammon reports.
14: A major piece of Nikki Haley's pitch to voters is the idea that she represents a new generation of leadership. Do we really want to have a country in disarray and a world on fire and have two 80-year-olds as our candidates? That was Haley campaigning last weekend in Orangeburg, South Carolina. Her presidential campaign's biggest obstacle right now is former President Donald Trump, who appears poised to defeat her on her home turf when South Carolina Republicans vote later this month. But Haley has been focusing many of her attacks on both Trump and Biden, pointing out their age and recent lapses. Haley told the crowd that last week's special counsel report, which questioned Biden's memory, highlighted that
1: concern. I wish him well. I do. But this is serious and we need to be very cautious of what's happening because Russia, China and Iran are paying attention to every bit of this.
14: And then Haley made a bold and
1: unsubstantiated claim. My bet is 30 days from now, I don't think Joe Biden's going to be the nominee. You're going to have a female president of the United States.
14: To be clear, Biden is almost certain to be the Democratic nominee. Haley provided no evidence for her speculation that he will step aside, nor for the suggestion that Vice President Kamala Harris is poised to step in anytime soon. Asked about Haley's prediction by NPR's Tamara Keith during a White House press briefing on Thursday, White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre suggested she had to be cautious about commenting on the campaign as a federal employee, but responded this way. The
7: president uh, is uh, obviously, you know his intentions for 2024.
14: As for Haley, Jean-Pierre said... I'm not sure what crystal ball she's looking at, but it's not the one we have. It wasn't the first time Haley had warned Republican audiences about the prospect of Harris stepping in.
1: And you know what should send a chill up every person's spine? The thought of a President Kamala Harris.
14: That was Haley in January. By raising the specter of a Harris presidency in this way, Haley is highlighting Biden's age and Harris's high disapproval ratings among Republican primary voters, says Ange Marie Hancock, a political scientist at Ohio State University.
7: So Republican primary voters are primed with negative views of Kamala Harris.
14: Hancock is curator of the Kamala Harris Project, a group of scholars who are studying Harris's vice presidency. She points to what she calls a drumbeat of attacks on Harris in right-wing circles, including former President Trump's use of racist birther theories to falsely suggest Harris may not be eligible to be vice president. Trump has directed similar false attacks at Haley. Hancock says Haley appears to be drawing on those themes as she campaigns for Republican primary votes.
22: She's using some dog whistles to actually
7: counteract dog whistles that could be levied against her.
14: That strategy appears unlikely to work for Haley, who's polling far behind Trump in her home state. But Hancock says it may offer a preview of the kinds of general election messages that Republicans, most of all Trump, will be using against Biden and Harris in the months to come. Sarah McCammon, NPR News, Washington.
8: You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. An informant named Alexander Smirnov told the FBI four years ago that Joe Biden and his son Hunter engaged in a bribery scheme to take millions of dollars from a Ukrainian energy company. Republicans on Capitol Hill pointed to it as evidence of criminal wrongdoing in their ongoing impeachment inquiry of President Biden. Turns out, it was all a lie, that is according to an indictment against Smirnov brought yesterday by Special Counsel David Weiss. NPR political correspondent Susan Davis joins us now for more on this and what it means for a possible impeachment. Hi, Sue. Hey, wanna
30: So, Sue, tell us who exactly is Smirnov and what's he charged with. So according to court papers, Smirnov has been a longtime FBI informant, dating back to 2010, and he's charged on two counts, making false statements and creating a false and fictitious record. Now, Smirnov allegedly told the FBI back in 2020 that when Joe Biden was vice president, he and his son Hunter took millions of dollars from Burisma, a Ukrainian energy company, and used their influence to shield this company from investigators prosecutors say smirnoff made that all up they say he also suggested he had a political bias that he had made repeated negative remarks to his fbi handler about joe biden even saying at one point in a text message that biden was going to end up in jail Important to note, as you as you noted, Juana, this indictment was brought by David Weiss. He was a Trump-appointed attorney, and he's also been leading a years-long investigation into Hunter Biden that has separately resulted in criminal charges for tax and gun crimes against the president's son.
8: And so, help us if you can't understand how exactly Alexander Smirnov fit into the impeachment inquiry in the House.
30: Yes, so he's been involved in one of the more high-profile allegations in the inquiry. House Oversight Committee Chairman James Comer last year released a public letter to the FBI saying that they had received credible information from a whistleblower, which we now know to be Smirnov, that there was evidence of a criminal scheme involving Biden. The committee spent months publicly pressuring the FBI to release this information to the committee. At one point, Comer even threatened to hold FBI Director Christopher Wray in contempt over it. It was also cited by Speaker Kevin McCarthy last fall when he announced the House would move forward with its formal impeachment inquiry and why it was justified.
8: Right. So then how much does this indictment undermine Republicans' case for impeachment against
30: President Biden? You know, it makes a a weak case a bit weaker. Republicans have uh, found a lot of damning things about the president's son, but they haven't offered clear evidence to date of impeachable offenses by the president. And you don't have to take my word for that, Juana. This is a point that has been raised by many Republican senators who would ultimately hold a trial if House if House Republicans were to pass articles of impeachment. But Republicans are under a lot of pressure. They're under pressure from Donald Trump. They're under pressure from their base to impeach Biden. And House Republicans didn't really seem to blink at this indictment. In a statement, Comer criticized the FBI's handling of the investigation and pointed out that their inquiry is not reliant on this piece of information alone. The committee's been looking at other bank records and have other witness testimony that have made allegations about the president. But again, no exact official act or crime I could point you to, but Comer did reiterate today. Impeachment still on the table.
8: Sue, what have you heard from democrats how have they been
30: responding uh you know president biden was asked about this today at the white house he said it was reason for the inquiry to end he said it's been an outrageous effort from the start in a statement hunter biden's lawyer Abby lowell said it proves their long-standing defense that the impeachment inquiry has been built on a number of conspiracy theories and there is some skepticism among house republicans that the party hasn't made a strong enough case to sell impeachment to the public this is clearly a setback in that regard NPR political correspondent Susan Davis, thank you. You're welcome.
7: This is All Things Considered from NPR News. This is
0: 90.9 WBUR. Israel's Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has rejected a ceasefire plan delivered by the Palestinian group Hamas to end the war in Gaza. Netanyahu has called the plan, quote, delusional. Follow reactions and analysis today and over the weekend here at 90.9 WBUR. In the forecast, we should have increasing clouds tonight. Windy still down in the mid-20s. Tomorrow should make it to the mid-30s with lots of clouds, maybe a little bit of sunshine. The remote chance of flurries tomorrow. And for Sundays, some sun competing with the clouds. Windy again, temperatures in the mid-30s again. President's Day Monday should be sunny, gusty winds, highs around 40 degrees. This is
31: WBUR. WBUR supporters include Cityside Subaru with a large inventory of new and pre-owned Subarus celebrating Washington's birthday all month on Route 60 in Belmont and citysidesubaru.com and Boston Children's Museum where families play and create together. Make your winter special with a visit to the museum. bostonchildrensmuseum.org
3: Take a break and have some fun with the news by playing the WBUR crossword puzzle each day.
32: Five letters, Digital Trash, two down south of Ecuador.
3: Play anytime at WBUR.org fun.
32: Five across, biggest toy maker. Four down, rock concert pit.
3: Play the WBUR crossword free every day at WBUR.org
29: fun.
0: Join Radio Boston host Tiziana Deering at CitySpace Monday, March 4th, for a conversation with Marie Hinojosa, award-winning journalist and host of Latino USA. Tickets are at WBUR.org slash events. This is 90.9 WBUR, 37 degrees now in Boston at 449.
7: This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Juana Summers. New fur coats are out of vogue. They are also banned in places
8: like California. In their place, vintage furs are having a moment, and that's reviving debates about the ethics of fur, vintage or not. More in a few minutes.
7: First, fast drivers, be warned, more automatic speed cameras are popping up across the country. Advocates say they will help save lives. Critics say they are a financial burden on those least able to pay. NPR's Joel Rose reports.
13: On the street near Linwood Holton Elementary School in Richmond, Virginia, the speed limit at drop-off and dismissal is 25 miles per hour. But Tara Fitzpatrick says it is not unusual to see drivers doing twice that.
30: So that was 42. We're still seeing a lot of folks coming in at 40.
13: This is not just her guess. Fitzpatrick owns a radar gun for her job. She works as a traffic safety advocate at the nonprofit Greater Richmond Fit for Kids. and also happens to have two children at the school. So we set up on the sidewalk with the radar gun and wait. Before long, a gray Chevy SUV flies by. How about this guy? This
30: guy, this guy, 52, 53, we got him.
13: This is one of two schools where Richmond has set up brand new automated cameras to catch speeders. Fitzpatrick has mixed feelings about this. She'd rather see the whole street redesigned to discourage speeding and protect pedestrians and bicyclists. But she also knows that won't happen anytime soon.
30: If I could make a quick fix tomorrow, it would not be school's own speed enforcement cameras. But that's the option that we're left with at this point, And a lot of us feel desperate in keeping our communities safe.
13: Richmond joins a growing list of cities turning to speed cameras. New laws in California and Pennsylvania will allow them in major cities where they have long been blocked. Traffic fatalities have risen sharply over the last decade. And safety advocates are desperately looking for anything that will get drivers to slow down. Automated enforcement works, it is effective, and it will make a difference. Jonathan Adkins is the CEO of the Governor's Highway Safety Association. He says police in many places are doing less traffic enforcement, and speeding and reckless driving seem to be getting worse. Adkins says automated enforcement can help fill that void. For lack of a better term, it sucks to get a ticket. It changes your behavior. No one likes getting a speeding ticket but the objections to automated traffic enforcement go deeper than that.
33: We are very skeptical that safety is the real goal.
13: Jay Bieber is with the National Motorists Association, a driver advocacy group. Bieber argues there are other ways to get drivers to slow down, including speed feedback signs that show drivers how fast they're going
33: in real time. There's many ways to get greater compliance, but they won't do all of the above because they do not want to lose the money from the tickets they are issuing.
13: There's another argument against speed cameras. Studies in Washington, D.C. and Chicago have shown that tickets from automated enforcement are paid disproportionately by people of color. Ola Tunji Obai-Reed runs a nonprofit in Chicago called Equiticity.
25: Automated enforcement has become a significant revenue driver for the city, and is financially harmful to uh, Black and brown people.
13: For decades, Reed says, Chicago has failed to fix some of the most dangerous intersections in the city or redesign roads to discourage speeding.
25: And the only solution we get is automated enforcement. That's not a failure of
10: Black people who speed
25: and run red lights. That's a failure of the transportation sector in Chicago.
13: But speed camera advocates say they've learned from those mistakes. Laura Friedman is an assembly member from the Los Angeles area who sponsored the new law in California. She says communities will be involved in choosing locations for those cameras.
2: We make sure that it can't be a money grab because the money can only be used for physical speed-lowering improvements on the same streets where you're using the cameras. So it's really about changing the culture and slowing traffic down.
33: We're looking at a a gray box that's sitting... 12 feet up, it's already been stickered by a graffiti artist.
13: DANNY HARRIS IS THE DIRECTOR OF TRANSPORTATION ALTERNATIVES, A nonprofit IN NEW YORK CITY, WHERE SPEED CAMERAS LIKE THIS ONE IN BROOKLYN HAVE BEEN IN USE FOR OVER A DECADE. AND HARRIS SAYS THEY'VE WORKED. NEW YORK IS A MODEL FOR AUTOMATED ENFORCEMENT. THE CITY DOES NOT WANT PEOPLE TO GET MORE THAN ONE TICKET. THAT'S WHY IF YOU GET ONE, YOU'RE ABOUT 60% LESS LIKELY TO GET A SECOND. FOR HARRIS, IT'S NOT COMPLICATED. IF YOU DON'T WANT A TICKET, DON'T SPEED. Joel Rose, NPR News, Brooklyn.
8: The fashion world generally agrees that new fur coats are unethical. But what about vintage furs, old pieces inherited from great aunts or taking up space in thrift stores? Fashion enthusiasts have been wondering about that lately, just as a TikTok trend took off. NPR's Alicia Hubbard reports.
34: Kayla Trivieri didn't expect to start a movement.
2: Queen girl is out. Mob wife era is
35: in.
34: But then she made this TikTok in early January.
35: We're wearing vintage furs all winter. The cheetah prints, the sparkle, the glitz, the glam, the furs, the big hair. It got
34: 1.8 million views and counting and ushered in a wave of responses and trend stories, all asking about the mob wife aesthetic. Trivieri was referring to the ostentatious style of female characters in mafia movies and TV shows, like The Sopranos. The look is all about form-fitting dresses, big sunglasses, flashy gold jewelry, and old fur coats.
35: Vintage fur is the best of both worlds.
34: That's Gilda Chesney, an actress based in Atlanta. For her, old fur is about fashion and sustainability.
35: It allows me to wear a beautiful coat that will keep me warm and last a lifetime without supporting industries that pollute or contribute to animal cruelty.
32: I always ask people that, you know, I'm like, what else would you rather us do with these things? Throw them away?
34: Johnny Valencia is the owner of Pechuga Vintage in Los Angeles. He sells vintage fur pieces that can reach prices of $18,000. The animal's life is gone, Valencia said. Giving a fur piece a second life helps him feel that it wasn't a waste. Not everyone agrees with that moral assessment. P.J. Smith, the director of fashion policy for the Humane Society of the United States, said that even wearing vintage fur can have harmful consequences
22: it's nearly
2: impossible to know if that fur is used or not. That could lead to new fur sales. If you're gonna wear fur contributing to that animal cruelty somehow. New
34: fur sales are now banned in California, with legislation pending in other states. That's one reason the artificial fur is now attracting interest. For example, the fashion brand Stella McCartney is using a product made with plants like nettle, hemp, and flax.
2: Faux fur is
22: getting better and better in quality and environmental impact.
34: Smith advocates for faux fur as an alternative to the real stuff. But Pachuga Vintage owner Johnny Valencia said the products he's seen have a long way to go.
2: Flat out, it looks cheap.
34: He recently tried on a Dolce & Gabbana coat.
2: It was gross. It's plastic on your body, and I'm just like, really?
9: You want me to pay $4,000 for plastic?
34: $4,000, for many, is a steep price to pay to participate in a trend. And the life cycle of a TikTok aesthetic moves quickly, Remember Cottagecore, Tomato Girl, and Coastal Grandma? By the time you hear this story, the mob wife trend might already be over.
35: We don't have to participate in every trend. Just remind yourself of that. Fashion is supposed to be fun. It's supposed to be a reflection of you and your identity, and whatever feels good.
34: Gila Treviere encourages people to use discretion as TikTok and other social media pump out trends. But vintage fur enthusiasts have noticed the attention boost. In January, Google searches for vintage fur had nearly doubled compared to three years ago. Hubbard, NPR News.
7: Thank you for listening to All Things Considered from NPR News.
21: Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Progressive Insurance, where drivers can compare direct rates using Progressive's rate comparison tool. Customers can see options and rates side by side. More at progressive.com or 1 800 Progressive. From the Wallace Foundation, working to develop and share practices that can improve learning and enrichment for young people and the vitality of the arts for everyone. Ideas and information at wallacefoundation.org. From the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, supporting creative people and effective institutions committed to building a more just, verdant, and peaceful world. More information is at MacFound.org. And from the sustaining members of this NPR station.
0: And this is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Boston's major sports teams are off tonight. The Bruins will be on Garden Ice tomorrow afternoon to host the LA Kings. Celtics are off for the NBA All-Star break. The game is Sunday evening in Indianapolis. Forward Jason Tatum will be in the starting lineup. It's nice to have the sunshine today because we may not see too much of it tomorrow. Clouds start to move in tonight, and we should have overnight lows about 27. Tomorrow, mainly gray skies, breezy, only in the mid-30s. Sunday, we should have a mix of sunshine and clouds once again, highs in the mid-30s. And then for the holiday, Monday should be sunnier, a little bit milder, right about 40 degrees.
36: I'm executive
33: producer of podcasts, Ben Brock-Johnson, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.
0: Today, 20 major tech companies agree to take measures to control the influence of artificial intelligence on elections. We all want and need to innovate, but it's also
24: just indispensable that we address the problems that are very real,
0: including to democracy. Today is Friday, February 16th, and this is All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. That story is coming up. Also, the man who made a documentary about Russian, Alexei Navalny, tells us about why the opposition leader was determined to return to Russia despite the risk. Nevaldi died at a penal colony in Siberia earlier today. And in a small town in West Virginia, residents are grappling with the energy transition from coal to wind power.
37: Coal was declining anyway, but it's always very emotional because so many people in the state are connected to these traditional energy sources.
0: These stories and Wall Street numbers are coming up. It's now 501.
3: Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Windsor Johnston. A federal judge in New York City is ordering former President Donald Trump to pay nearly $355 million for civil fraud. NPR's Jimena Bustillo reports the ruling delivers a crushing blow to the Republican presidential frontrunner.
38: The Friday decision in total issues a nearly $364 million penalty for not just Trump, but his two sons, Eric and Donald Jr. and ex-Trump executive Alan Weisselberg. But Trump is left to pay out the lion's share of that penalty, and Goran presided over the more than two months trial, where the attorney general's legal team argued Trump inflated the value of his assets to land better business and banking deals. Now he will be limited from doing business in New York for three years. Trump has long denied these claims, calling the trial a political witch hunt. Jimena Bustillo, NPR News, New York.
3: President Biden is blaming Russian President Vladimir Putin for the death of the country's opposition leader, Alexei Navalny. Speaking from the White House today, Biden said his administration doesn't know exactly what happened to Navalny, but his death was a, quote, consequence of something Putin and his thugs did.
16: Putin is responsible for Navalny's death. Putin is responsible. What has happened in Devolvi is yet more proof of Putin's brutality. No one should be fooled, not in Russia, not at home, not anywhere in the world.
3: Biden also said this underscores the need for House Republicans to pass additional aid for Ukraine to counter Putin's ambitions. The Department of Veterans Affairs is scrambling in the wake of a debacle in its home loan program that left many veterans unable to pay their mortgages. After NPR broke the story last year, the VA halted thousands of foreclosures across the country. Now, NPR's Chris Arnold has this update.
6: At a congressional hearing this week, the head of the VA loan program, John Bell, said he wants to fix this fiasco.
23: We are looking for a solution to be able to help 40,000 borrowers stay off foreclosure.
6: At issue is what's called a COVID mortgage forbearance, which let people who lost income skip monthly payments. But then the VA scuttled the program, stranding thousands of veterans. Iraq War vet Edmund Garcia says his lender says he needs to come up with $22,000 in missed payments.
25: How am I going to come up with $22,000? I'm going to lose my home. I said, what am I going to do with my kids? The VA plans
6: to roll out a rescue plan this spring. Chris Arnold, NPR News.
3: Stocks on Wall Street closed lower today. The Dow Jones Industrial Average was down 145 points at the close. The Nasdaq Composite fell 130. The S&P
0: down 24 points.
3: This is NPR
0: News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon, I'm Lisa Mullins. Congressman Bill Keating calls the death of one of the leading opponents to Russian President Vladimir Putin a shock but not a surprise. Russian officials say Alexei Navalny died today at a penal colony in Siberia. Keating is the ranking member of a House Foreign Affairs Subcommittee. WBUR's Fausta Menard has more on Keating's reaction to Navalny's death.
33: Keating says he doesn't buy Moscow's version of the death that Navalny felt ill after a walk in the prison yard and soon lost consciousness. He says he hopes this is a wake-up call to some of his House colleagues who have praised Putin. Keating says Congress needs to send a message by passing an aid package for Ukraine, which Russia invaded two years ago.
5: Ukraine is the front line of a defense that uh, we could find ourselves with young men and women uh, being deployed on uh, should Putin be successful in Ukraine and move to the Baltics as he has said he would, those are NATO countries.
33: Keating praises Navalny for returning to Russia, even though he knew he'd likely be imprisoned. He says he hopes Navalny's courage inspires all who
0: value freedom. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Fausto Menard. The Massachusetts Comptroller William McNamara says the state's financial condition remained sound despite some challenges. He told lawmakers yesterday that Massachusetts, like other states, faced a strain from the pandemic, the end of federal relief funds and inflation. But he said the state has done better than most other states and has a rainy day fund to fall back on. The Boston Conservatory Orchestra will showcase works by black composers at a concert tonight to celebrate Black History Month. As part of the concert, Brandeis University law professor Anita Hill will recite the words of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Hill tells WBR's Radio Boston she believes King's words matter today more than ever.
18: We are now
7: in movement territory, again, to fight for justice, to fight for rights that are being eroded. And so I think I will add a contemporary voice and hopefully inspire a contemporary
26: understanding of the words.
0: The concert celebrating Black History Month is tonight at 8 o'clock at Symphony Hall in Boston. Clouds move in tonight. Temperatures move down to about the mid-20s. Tomorrow, clouds should spend most of the day, maybe a few shots of sunshine. Temperatures in the mid-30s. And then for Sunday in the mid-30s once again, but we should get to see more sun amid a few clouds. Monday, the holiday should be mainly sunny, a little bit windier, a little warmer. Could climb toward 40 degrees. 37 degrees now in Boston at 507.
21: Support for NPR comes from NPR stations. Other contributors include the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, supporting creative people and effective institutions committed to building a more just, verdant, and peaceful world. More information is at macfound.org.
8: This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers in Washington.
12: And I'm Ari Shapiro in Kaiser, West Virginia, where you can see a shift the entire country is experiencing towards renewable energy. The country's first major climate policy, known as the Inflation Reduction Act, gave that transition a boost. It passed with the key vote of Senator Joe Manchin, Democrat of West Virginia. Like many towns in this state, Kaiser used to depend on coal. This railroad track running through the center of town ran non-stop with coal trains. Right now, it's quiet. But on the snow-capped mountains in the distance, a long row of wind turbines slowly spin in the breeze. You can see the turbines and the railroad tracks from the window of Queens Point Coffee Shop, where I met Kaiser's mayor, Damon Tillman.
39: Energy is huge in this town, and without it, we wouldn't have very much.
12: Mayor Tillman grew up in Kaiser. He's been head of the city government for six years, and he says lots of people here who didn't work directly in the coal mines still had jobs that depended on the industry, like on the railroads. But that all started disappearing back in the 1970s with automation. By the time renewable energy came along, the coal industry was already a fragment of what it had been. And today?
39: It's gone.
12: I mean, the coal industry is about phased out. It struck me last night just at the hotel, at the place we ate dinner, you could see the people who work in coal mines because they had black
39: dust on their face and hands and clothes. It's almost like your trophy saying, hey, I worked hard for the day. Yeah. you know, And I just want something to eat and go home.
0: Mm.
12: And how much of that is also just about identity? Like, this is who we are and who we've always been? It is.
39: It's part of that Appalachian mountain thing, you know? I think people are very proud of who they are and where they're from. Um, I'm curious, you know, with the support of Joe Manchin of West Virginia,
12: the Biden administration got the Inflation Reduction Act, which has a lot of federal money coming to places like West Virginia to transition towards clean energy. So on the one hand, you're getting money and jobs and tax benefits, and on the other hand, you're getting a push away from what has been the energy source for this state for a very long time. How do you balance those two things?
39: That's true, but let me say this first is, Yes, Joe Manchin did get a lot of it, And I like Joe. I mean, I talked to him a good bit. Um, but the thing is, a city like Kaiser don't ever see any of that money. Hardly ever would, will we see any money from that. I mean, just
12: to be blunt, do you wish he had voted against it? I do. I do. And
39: what does he say when you tell him that? Well, I never told him that. <laughs> so, Joe, if you hear me, there you go, bud. <laughs> you seen how the people in Kaiser live. You know... I'm not saying we are poor people. I'll tell you we're we're proud people. Come on. Like the Davidson brothers, you know, that's a band from Bridgeport, West Virginia. You know, they got a song out called Poe Boys. From the beat-up towns
22: all around, nothing but dirt and hand me downs. It ain't our choice. We're just po boys.
39: Well, we just the po-boys kind of Kai.
35: Hey now, everybody home.
12: We requested an interview with Senator Manchin, who has announced his retirement. He declined to talk to us. We've driven up a winding road to the top of the ridge where it looks like you're in the snow globe. All of the trees are covered in white, and above us, you can actually hear the wind turbines spinning.
28: My whole family worked in
12: coal. Doug Vance is a manager on this wind farm and he represents the energy shift that the entire country is experiencing right now, away from carbon-emitting fossil fuels that have caused climate change, towards renewable energy that can slow global warming.
28: I was in a fuel preparation plant and that's where I worked for quite a number of years before transitioning into wind in 2008.
12: And boy, you can really feel the wind right now.
28: It really is windy today.
12: Why don't we duck into the car and continue the conversation with less wind? (laughs) The Biden administration often talks about what it calls a just transition for people moving out of work in fossil fuels, doing right by people losing their jobs. And clean energy projects from the Inflation Reduction Act are disproportionately going to red states. But the thing is, processing coal requires many hands, which means lots of jobs, Renewables like wind and solar are just not as hands-on.
28: But I think that's that way in every industry, you know, artificial intelligence and automation and things like that have taken a lot of the place of manual labor.
12: What Doug Vance says is true. Automation is one big reason coal jobs started to disappear in the 1970s. And after that, cheap natural gas took away many more coal jobs. So the industry had been shrinking dramatically for decades, long before turbines first showed up on this ridge in 2012. How many people
28: work here for this wind farm? Uh, We have six full-time employees, and then we have a lot of supporting contractors when we have outages and we do substation electrical work. Six sounds like a very small number, I gotta say. It is. It's a small number.
12: Economist Mark Curtis at Wake Forest University in North Carolina has studied this shift in the workforce.
6: And, you know, we found that of workers that were leaving fossil fuel jobs, certainly less than 2% ended up in a renewable energy job. So it's not a lot. And in a place like West Virginia, it was even smaller than that. You know, Approximately a quarter of a percent of workers that left fossil fuel jobs were going to renewable energy jobs.
12: So people like Doug Vance might represent the country's shift from fossil fuels to renewables, but he doesn't represent the workforce. He's the lucky exception who got a job in wind. And researcher Eleanor Kraus points out another challenge. She's a PhD candidate at Harvard who's heading to a teaching job at the University of Kentucky.
35: Coal mining employment happens where coal mines exist. And These coal mines aren't necessarily the same places where the wind blows and the sun shines the brightest. Hmm. And so it's not necessarily the case that we can just sort of replace coal mines with wind turbines or replace coal mines with solar panels to provide alternative sources of energy production and alternative sources of jobs.
12: And Krauss says there's another thing many people get wrong about coal. For the most part, renewables are not the reason those jobs went away. But then there's the visual natural gas fracking just doesn't cut a silhouette over town the way wind turbines twirl on the ridge West over Virginia. Kaiser. This, this
24: is Metro News Talk Line with, with Hoppy Kirchhoff.
12: Hoppy Kirchival like has been broadcasting to the people of his home state for nearly 50 years. He hosts the daily program Talkline on West Virginia Metro News. So if anybody has a read on how people in this state are feeling, it's him.
37: I think a realization's begun to set in that coal was declining anyway. But it's it's always very emotional because so many people in the state are connected in one way or another to these traditional energy sources.
12: How do you think people generally view the inflation reduction act? What do you think the prevailing view of, of that legislation is?
37: Manchin was seen as selling out to Biden and his fellow Democrats and politically that hurt him. Mm. But at the same time, the practical aspect is, there's all this green energy money that's coming to West Virginia, and the last two years has seen uh, more economic development announcements than I can remember in this state. So on one hand, you have political leaders and others and community leaders who are more than willing to be at the groundbreaking and the ribbon cutting, but at the same time, politically denounce or be critical of The Inflation Reduction Act, that is the paradox of that.
12: And that is part of the divide that Callie Dayton is trying to straddle. She's external affairs manager for Clearway, the energy company that owns the Pinnacle Wind Farm. So a big part of her job is listening to the community. And she's from here. She grew up right outside of Kaiser. We talked to her as we walked down Kaiser's Main Street.
14: There's concerns sometimes, obviously, about safety, you know, viewshed, things of that nature, but...
12: You said viewshed, that's like yes. looking at the horizon and seeing yes. the turbines. Uh-huh,
14: yeah. So for me, they're really interesting. I don't remember really life without those turbines up on the mountain.
12: Mm-hmm.
14: Um, and they just, I think, serve as a testament to our efforts in the community. We've made a huge effort to make sure that people understand what's in their backyard,
12: Further down Main Street, Sheila Wagoner is about to climb into her car. Her father used to be a railroad engineer moving coal. She's 71, grew up in Kaiser, and she misses the way things used to be.
26: I really don't care for those windmills. Why not? I guess I wasn't brought up with that kind of society. Like 50 of them together, who likes all that? I mean, if you had one here and there staggered out, it wouldn't be so bad. So, so what
12: do you think when you look up and see that? Oh my. <laughs> just then a train horn sounds and it's a rare sight cars full of coal as we watch them rumble by sheila wagoner gets a little emotional does that remind you of the old time seeing those coal cars roll by
26: yeah those memories are good memories my dad passed at 64 but it
16: was from working hard.
12: The science on this transition is clear. If humans hope to avoid the most catastrophic impacts of climate change, we have to switch tracks quickly from carbon-emitting fossil fuels that warm the planet to renewable energy like wind and solar. But even among people in West Virginia who support wind projects, it's hard to find anyone who talks about it in the context of global warming. One exception, Josh Bose.
34: I was born on Earth Day, and so since I was a kid, Every birthday it was always at least some essence of Earth Day theme. He
12: decided to change careers from contracting and construction. And now at age 31, he's in his last semester of a two-year program at Eastern West Virginia Community and Technical College. He's learning to be a wind turbine
7: technician. I I want to stay here and I want to see our state move forward.
12: His classmates take a less idealistic approach. So does his teacher, Isaiah Smith,
39: who was just turning 23 on the day we visited. I guess the best way I can put it is my feelings don't mattered that much what well, what matters is price and if you can give people power that's cheaper and cleaner why would they pay more money for coal because that's that's really what's coming down to
12: as isaiah smith puts it we are past the point of feelings it comes down to money and money runs the world
8: This story was produced by Kat Lonsdorf and Michael Levitt, and it was edited by Tenbeat Aramius.
0: You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. And thanks for being with us on this Friday afternoon on All Things Considered. Coming up in about 15 minutes, art imitates life. We talk with the director of the Oscar-winning documentary Navalny. He'll explain why Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny took on Vladimir Putin.
20: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Brookline Bank, where financial solutions are crafted to the needs of your business and delivered with a hands-on approach committed to your success. Learn more at brooklinebank.com, member FDIC, and Becoming a Man at ART, a world premiere play about one man's gender transition amid a pivotal American political moment. Now through March 10th, amrep.org. Some slipping and sliding on Wall Street today. The Dow fell nearly
0: four-tenths of a percent, ending a five-week win streak. S&P lost nearly a half percent, still closed above 5,000. The Nasdaq dropped more than eight-tenths of a percent. This is WBUR.
20: WBUR supporters include Boston's How Do You See the World experience with the Maparium Globe. Visit and explore stories about global progress. Tickets at howdoyouseetheworld.com.
0: A second airline will soon offer nonstop service between Boston and Hawaii. Today, Delta announced it will begin seasonal service between Logan Airport, and Honolulu on the island of Oahu. The daily 11-hour flight will run between November and April. Hawaiian Airlines began flying the Boston-Oahu route in 2018. This is 90.9 WBUR. In the forecast, clouds increasing over the next several hours. Look for temperatures in the mid-20s tonight. Then for tomorrow, lots of clouds, maybe a little bit of sunshine, also the chance of flurries. High temperatures in the mid-30s, sunshine on Sunday. This is WBUR.
21: Support for NPR comes from the station, and from BritBox, with the goal of helping people discover a world of British TV, including new original series Archie, The Man Who Became Cary Grant, streaming at BritBox.com NPR. From Workday, with AI at the core of its platform, Workday is committed to delivering continuous innovation to help teams stay agile. Workday, the finance and HR platform for a changing world and from the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation at rwjf.org.
7: From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Mary Louise
1: Kelly.
8: And I'm Juana Summers. More than 40 countries are set to hold major elections this year, and many experts worry that rapidly evolving artificial intelligence technologies could disrupt those votes. Just a few weeks ago, an apparent deep fake robocall that sounded like President Joe Biden told people not to vote in New Hampshire— Today, 20 major tech companies announced they are going to do their part to avoid becoming the story. Joining us now to talk through this new agreement are NPR Shannon Bond, who covers how information travels, and Miles Parks, who covers voting. Hello, y'all. Hi there. Hi, Wana. Shannon, I want to start with you. Tell us about this agreement. What's in it?
35: Well, it's aimed at AI-generated images, audio and video that could deceive voters. So whether that's by impersonating a candidate doing or saying something they didn't or misleading people about when or how to vote. And the companies are agreeing to some pretty broad commitments here uh, to develop technology to watermark AI content and to detect and label these kind of fakes. They're pledging to be more transparent about how their tools and platforms are being used. They want to educate the public about AI. Now, look, many of these actions are things some of these companies are already working on. And what's notable here, Juana, is that this agreement does not outright ban this kind of deceptive use of AI in elections. Right.
8: Okay. let's dig in a little bit here. Does this agreement actually bind these companies to do anything or is this
35: more of like a mission statement? Yeah, this is a voluntary agreement, so it's not binding. And remember, just because companies create policies about AI doesn't mean they always effectively enforce them. Now, this agreement came together in just the past six weeks. And in many ways, you know, it seems like it had to be pretty broad to get this many companies to agree. We spoke with Microsoft President Brad Smith today. He said that unity itself is an accomplishment.
24: We all want and need to innovate. We want and need to compete with each other but it's also just indispensable that we acknowledge and address the problems that are very real including to democracy
35: and indeed you know even as these companies including microsoft are saying you know they're on guard over risks of ai they're also continuing to roll out even more advanced technology like just yesterday OpenAI, one of the other companies that signed this agreement, they announced this tool that allows you to type in a simple text description to create a really realistic high definition video.
8: I mean, hearing you describe that, it's easy to see how a tool like that could be used to spread lies about voting, for example. Miles, over to you. How are elections officials feeling about AI right now?
33: They are thinking about it a lot. Last week, I was at a conference with some of the top election officials in the country. They don't want people to panic. Generally, they see AI as more of an extension of problems they were already working on. That's how Adrian Fontes, who's the Secretary of State of Arizona, that's how he put it to me when we were talking.
27: AI needs to be demystified. AI needs to be exposed for the amplifier that it is, not the great, mysterious, world-changing, calamity-inducing uh, you know, monstrosity that some people are making it out to be.
33: That said, there are a myriad of ways experts can imagine these tools threatening democracy, even beyond, I think, the most obvious use case, which is, you know, making a fake video of a candidate saying something they didn't actually say.
8: Walk us through, if you can, some of those scenarios. Yeah,
33: I I asked Smith from Microsoft about this, and he said specifically he's worried about people using AI to dub over real videos with fake audio. That could be a lot more convincing to people than creating a whole new video, but... There's also a bigger picture worry that I heard percolating at this conference last week, that as more fake stuff is swirling online, the public will slowly lose trust in all information. That's one of the hardest aspects of this accord. The tech companies say they want the public to be more skeptical of what they see online, but that can lead to this feeling among people that nothing is true or real, and bad actors can capitalize on that too, by then being able to claim that real information Mm. is fake. It's called the liar's dividend. With more AI-generated stuff floating around, it's just going to become more and more common that candidates, when real bad information comes out about them, they can just say, no, that's that's fake, that's AI-generated.
8: I mean, we should just point out here that policing truth and lies online is really fraught these days. The political right, in particular, has cast these kinds of efforts as
35: politically biased. Are tech companies worried about diving in here? Yeah, I asked Brad Smith of Microsoft about this, you know, and he and and other tech executives involved in this, they say there is a clear distinction here between free expression, which they say they're all committed to, and using AI or other kinds of technology, you know, in a way that is really deceiving, misleading voters, interfering with the election process. They're very much framing this fight as one against fraud.
33: I do think that we'll probably see companies jump in a lot harder against things that are explicit lies about how people vote. Think of like a video that claims election day is on Friday versus Tuesday. That's Mm -hmm. pretty easy to police. I think it's the content that raises doubts about the trustworthiness about elections, that it's still an open question how companies are going to police that sort of content in 2024.
7: That's NPR's Miles Parks and Shannon Bond. Thanks to both of you. Thanks, Juana. Thanks, Juana. Kenya has been celebrating the career and life of marathon runner Kelvin Kiptum, who went from borrowing running shoes to breaking world records. Kenyans are mourning his sudden death as Michael Koloki reports from Nairobi.
15: Kelvin Kiptum literally exploded onto the running scene from the Valencia marathon 14 months ago.
6: Kelvin Kiptum is the winner.
22: Wow what a run Richard Absolutely.
15: to last year's London Marathon
29: Kelvin Kiptum. what a superstar
15: and finally the Chicago Marathon in October an amazing effort by Kelvin Kipton for a new world record he Bank was an American extraordinary League. athlete destined for greatness his goal within his grasp shattering the two-hour Marathon barrier but this wasn't to be On Sunday, Kiptoum and his Rwandan coach, Jave Hakizimana, were killed in a road accident in Eldoret, Kenya. He was 24. The news was a huge blow to a country that greatly prides itself in its athletes. In a statement, Kenya's president, William Ruto, called Kiptoum, I quote, "...extraordinary sportsman who had left an extraordinary mark on the globe." Born in Chepkoryo, a rural area in Kenya's Rifty Valley region, he grew up as an only child, herding cattle as a young boy, harboring dreams of becoming an athlete like his cousin. His father said that when Kelvin began his rise in the world of athletics, he had always promised his parents he would build them a decent house to live in. I'm standing on the slopes of Ngong Hills in Kenya's Kajado County. This area is about 13 miles southwest of the capital, Nairobi. I can see some athletes training here, running up the hills. It is on similar hills like these ones in Kenya's Rift Valley region, where a young Kelvin Kiptoum would train and later proceed to represent the country on the international marathon circuit. We are saddened because he was supposed to be in the Olympics. For many Kenyans, like Brenda Serra, Kiptoum was not just a source of pride for the country, he was an example of hope.
38: Now we've lost somebody who would have given us maybe a medal or gold medal. So
15: it's so saddening about it. The Kenyan government has announced that it will oversee arrangements for the athlete's funeral, which is due to be held next week. They have also pledged to build Kiptoum's family, the house he had promised he would build them. His life was brief, but his legacy lasting. And here in Kenya, his loss is felt by everyone. For NPR News, I'm Michael Kaloki in Nairobi, Kenya. This
0: is NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR, a heads up for Green Line riders. Your trip is going to slow down starting next week. The Green Line will be closed at Copley Square, Babcock Street, Cleveland Circle and Brookline Hills starting Tuesday. That's so crews can do track work. The team will offer free shuttle buses. And the commuter rail will also be free between Lansdowne Station and South Station. The closures will last until March 8th. Clouds around tonight, lows in the mid-20s, but the wind should make it feel a lot colder overnight tonight. Tomorrow, partly to mostly cloudy, temperatures in the mid-30s. Sunday, mainly sunny, staying in the mid-30s. And then President's Day on Monday should be brighter, a little bit milder, close to 40 degrees. This is 90.9 WBUR. The time is 5.30.
26: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink, and proud sponsor of The Heart of New England, the new IMAX film now showing at the Museum of Science Boston. And Boston Ballet's winter experience celebrating the evolution of dance with two world premieres. Starts February 22nd. Tickets at bostonballet.org.
5: Ed Zwick has more than 40 years in Hollywood, and boy does he have some stories like the time Julia Roberts dropped out of Shakespeare in Love just as they were about to film.
27: Then one day, after a certain process, she was gone. She just split.
5: Writer and director Ed Zwick on his memoir, Hits, Flops, and Other Illusions, Saturday on Weekend Edition from NPR News. Start your weekend here tomorrow.
27: Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. In New York City, a judge has ordered former president Donald Trump and his companies to pay nearly $355 million for inflating the value of his properties and other assets, while Trump's sons, Eric and Don Jr., were ordered to pay $4 million each. All three are temporarily banned from running a company in New York. NPR's Andrea Bernstein says it's a big win for New York's Attorney General Letitia James after a three-year investigation.
29: Basically, New York State Supreme Court Judge Arthur N. Goran rejected every single defense Trump and his team presented in months of testimony. The judge said the law only requires that defendants intended to defraud, not that they were victims, not that anyone relied on his false statements. The judge said it didn't hold water, that it was Trump's accountant's fault.
27: The judge also described the ex-president's lack of remorse in the case as bordering on the pathological. Kansas City Police say two juveniles have been arrested and charged in connection with a mass shooting this week following a Super Bowl parade for the Chiefs. Local lawmakers there are expressing frustration with Missouri's gun laws, which are among the weakest in the nation. Salisa Kulakul reports.
34: Forty years ago, the Missouri Legislature passed a law preventing local governments from enacting their own gun restrictions. Supporters said it would lead to uniformity on gun laws statewide but gun control advocates say it means lawmakers in Kansas City cannot pass any meaningful local gun control laws. Only the Missouri legislature has that authority and they've used it to weaken gun restrictions. Kansas City Mayor Quentin Lucas said, it's like being stuck between a rock and a hard place. Other local lawmakers are not hopeful the Republican dominated legislature will pass gun reform anytime soon.
27: This is NPR.
0: This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. A former Massachusetts attorney general says the state could make the town of Milton an example of the kind of punishment a community faces for not complying with a state mandate to promote more housing. Here's WBUR's Rob Lane.
33: The state law Milton voters rejected this week calls for more multifamily zoning near T-stops. Defiance of the law leaves the town vulnerable to a lawsuit and the withholding of significant state funds. Former state AG Scott Harshbarger tells WBUR's Radio Boston he expects both those punitive measures to be on the table.
22: Anybody that uh, thinks that this is going to be taken lightly by the attorney general, uh, let alone the governor, is gambling quite highly.
33: Harshbarger says the state cannot afford to embolden other cities and towns to think that they too could go against the MBTA
0: Communities Act. For 90.9 WBUR. I'm Rob Lane. Prosecutors have dropped the domestic violence charge against Bruins forward Milan Lucic. He was accused of assaulting his wife in November during an argument. The Suffolk County DA's office says it dropped the charge after she refused to testify against him and the judge refused to allow her 911 call for help into evidence. Lucic remains on indefinite leave from the Bruins. State wildlife officials are encouraging people to get outside this weekend and count birds. It's part of a global effort called the Great Backyard Bird Count, and it's exactly what it sounds like. People are encouraged to report to the Mass Audubon Society the number and types of birds they see around their home and neighborhoods. John Herbert is the Society's Director of Bird Conservation. He says it's a good time to check on which species are migrating through the region.
5: We have birds that don't breed here, but they spend the winters here. So it's, it's good for us to know where they are, uh, what habitat they're using, and better protect that habitat, and better protect
22: uh, these these birds.
31: The count will last through Monday. The forecast is coming up. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Welch and Forbes. Over 180 years of experience providing customized private wealth management for individuals and families. Welchforbes.com. Not a bad weekend for
0: counting birds or whatever else. Some clouds moving in tonight. Temperatures down to the mid-20s. Should be a pretty dry weekend. Clouds stay the day tomorrow. Temperatures in the mid-30s, maybe a little bit of sunshine. Then for Sunday in the mid-30s again, more sunshine amid some of the clouds. Monday, the holiday should be mainly sunny, a little windier, a little warmer. Could climb toward 40 degrees. 35 degrees now in Boston at 535.
21: Support for NPR comes from this station. And from the Kauffman Foundation, providing access to opportunities that help people achieve financial stability, upward mobility, and economic prosperity, regardless of race, gender, or geography. Kauffman.org. And from the Walton Family Foundation, working to create access to opportunity for people and communities by tackling tough social and environmental problems. More information is at waltonfamilyfoundation.org. This is NPR. From
8: NPR
7: News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. Today we're following news of the death of Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny. If he was, as is widely suspected, murdered, it would not be the first time an attempt was made on his life. In 2020, Navalny was poisoned with Novichok, a military-grade nerve agent from the Soviet era. He was transferred from Russia to Germany for treatment, and over his long recovery in Berlin, Navalny answered questions from the filmmaker Daniel Rohr. Navalny was determined to return to Russia, which prompted this question on camera from
36: Rohr.
32: Alexei, if you are arrested and thrown in prison or the unthinkable happens and you're killed, what message do you leave behind to the Russian people?
12: Uh, uh, My message...
11: For the uh, situation when I am killed, it's very simple. Not give up. Do me a favor. Answer this
32: one
28: in Russian. Um. И здесь у меня просто
12: Listen, Navalny is
7: saying, I have got something very obvious to tell you, you're not allowed to give up. If they decided to kill me, it means we are incredibly strong. We need to utilize this power to not give up, to remember we're a huge power that is being oppressed by these bad dudes. We don't realize how strong we actually are. The only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is for good people to do nothing. So don't be inactive, Navalny says. Well, Daniel Rohr directed the Academy Award winning documentary based on his conversations with Navalny. It's titled simply Navalny, Daniel War, Welcome to All Things Considered.
32: Thank you for having me.
7: How did you hear the news today?
32: Well, I'm on uh, the West Coast, um, and I'm used to being woken up in the middle of the night because my wife and I have a little baby. And I thought my wife was waking me up because it was time for a diaper change or something like this. But instead, she told me the devastating news that Navalny uh, had died in spite of the clip you just played and, and all of the things that you know, Navalny and I talked about and all the things that I've thought about over the years since I've met him. I, I was shocked and i'm now surprised that i was so shocked it seems like something that was so possible for so long and when i heard the news i i was just shocked
7: oh. take us back to those conversations uh, you and he were in germany you you were catching him on film and what it emerged were among the last moments of freedom before he disappeared uh, or returned to russia and then ultimately disappeared inside a russian prison system
32: quite literally the last Seconds of freedom. In our film, we depict Alexei being arrested and being taken away for what was his last moment of, of freedom. He crosses a literal border into prison, it seems. It was sort of devastating in a way watching him fly back to Russia, knowing the dangers that were lurking there. I'm not in a position to comment on it except to say that it was an incredibly bold decision. Um, and it is just so tragic that this is this is the result.
2: Did
7: he believe, and I'm asking based on the many conversations you had with him, did he believe that he would pay with his life if he went back? Or did he think he could stand up to Vladimir Putin and win?
32: Navalny was an incredibly optimistic, bright guy. And I was surprised at just how sure he was in himself and in his mission. I think he felt that the beautiful Russia of the future wasn't as far away as people thought. And he framed himself as, as one of the leaders who would usher in this beautiful Russia of the future. So I think he did not have a death wish. He did not want to perish for the cause. He expected that he would go to prison, but he would live. Um, I'm left now feeling sort of like at a loss, like this is the end of the story. This is, this is what happened, but in fact. This is not the ending of the story. This is the beginning of a new chapter. Navalny is dead, yes, but his mission and his purpose lives on. He was fighting against corruption, and most importantly, he was fighting to end this brutal regime. And it is my hope that with the tragedy, sadness, and anger of his murder comes a renewed action from both Russians and people around the world who are staring down at the rise of authoritarianism.
7: If you could have put one more question to him on camera or otherwise, what would it have been?
32: You know, that's a good question and it's tough for me to answer it. But maybe I would ask him once again with greater clarity, the question that everyone seemingly is at a loss for and doesn't know the answer to, which is, why are you going back? Why do you want to do this? Why can't you be effective from the outside? He sort of brushed it off, I think, when I asked him that question. And, and in retrospect, it's very easy for me to say, I wish that I had pressed the point a little further and we had explored that line of questioning with greater clarity.
7: You know, when when you were there in Berlin with Navalny, his family was there, his wife, Yulia, their kids. Did you talk with them about Navalny's fight, how they felt about the decision to go back to Russia?
32: I think it was easier for me to talk to Alexei about his decision. It almost seemed taboo, to talk to Yulia. It's not something that she wanted to discuss with me, which I fully appreciate. I think largely what I witnessed was a family who was completely resolute in the sense of mission and completely supportive in in their husband and father. Um, And I think it would not be as easy for him to be brave if his family wasn't brave. And I think that that type of courage and bravery proliferated around all of Navalny's staff, many of his supporters and even in our own little way, this this little film team, who for a short time um, was, was a, a, a closely associated with Alexei and his mission.
7: Yeah. Have you stayed in touch with any of his team? Have you heard from them today?
32: Uh, I haven't heard from his family today, um, but we have kept in touch. Uh, Yulia and Dasha tore up the dance floor at my wedding, and I have a great deal of love for them. And when the time is right, um, I look forward to seeing them again and, and giving Dasha and Yulia Sahar a big hug.
7: Hmm. I mean, listening to you, it, it becomes obvious that uh, the relationship you formed with Alexei Navalny was not just the subject of a movie you were making. He, he became a friend?
32: Yeah, you know, I, I might have been at one time reticent to say that, call him a friend. You know, it's a tricky relationship. Um, you know, he is a subject of my film. I knew him in such a short time. But in those two months that we spent together, we spent a lot of time together. And you know there were many walks and there were long drives and there were interviews. And I'm remembering a letter that he sent to me just after the Oscars and just after my wedding that was so warm and sweet and congratulatory. And he was so seemingly proud of me. And I think that that's the type of letter a friend would send. And so, yeah, that's how I'm thinking of him as, as my my dear friend, who I will miss terribly, whose courage and sort of resilience and, and bravery, I hope, resonates in my own life.
7: Well, then, Daniel Rohr, I will say I'm so sorry for the loss of your friend. And thank you for taking the time to speak with us.
32: I appreciate it. Thank you very much.
7: Daniel Rohr directed the Academy Award winning 2022 film, Navalny. You're listening to All Things Considered. In Miami, a former State Department employee and ambassador was formally charged today with being an agent of the Cuban government. Manuel Rocha pleaded not guilty to the charges. Rocha is 73. He has been in federal detention since his arrest in December. Prosecutors say he was, recu- he was recruited by Cuba in the 1970s and acted as an illegal foreign agent throughout his two-decade career as an American diplomat and Pierre's greg allen is following the case and joins us from miami hey greg hi mary louise all right fill us in what happened at this arraignment today
28: well Rocha was there in federal court in miami his attorney filed a waiver this week saying he wasn't going to be there but he showed up anyway he was handcuffed dressed in a khaki prison jumpsuit with a full beard it's the first time we've seen him since his arrest on December 1st. The arraignment took just, of course, a few minutes. His attorney said he was pleading not guilty and was requesting a jury trial. The magistrate judge asked Rocha if he understood the charge against him, and he said, I do, Your Honor. Uh, Rosha hasn't requested a bail hearing, so he'll remain in detention. And the judge set a trial date in late March.
7: And fill in a little bit more detail, a little more color about what exactly he is charged with.
28: Right. Well, you know, he's he's charged with acting as an illegal foreign agent for Cuba, and there's other charges in there, a conspiracy charge and numerous counts of fraud. The indictment says after he was recruited by the Cuban intelligence agency, he became a U.S. citizen and then applied for work at the State Department. And from 1981 to, to 2002, he served in a variety of diplomatic posts. He was in the Dominican Republic, in Argentina, in Cuba, and then finally ended his career as ambassador to Bolivia. The indictment doesn't indicate what secrets or other information he may have transmitted to Cuba, but he's charged with being uh, an illegal agent. Uh, at this point, he's not been charged with espionage.
7: And have we learned any more about how they how they finally identified him as a, as a possible agent?
28: It's it's still not clear. Intelligence experts who've weighed in say it's it likely came from a, t- a tip from a Cuban defector. In November is when this uh, sting began, when an undercover FBI agent contacted Rocha. Uh, On behalf of what he said were, quote, your friends in Havana, this undercover agent and Rocha then began a series of meetings in Miami, and, and the indictments say that Rocha bragged to the informant about the work he did for Cuban intelligence in these meetings. At one, he said... Uh, quote, what we've done is enormous, more than a grand slam. Uh, but then there's new reporting from the Associated Press that says U.S. intelligence officials may have dropped the ball on information that they received about Rocha nearly two decades ago. Huh. In 2006, a Cuban defector tipped off a former CIA operative about Russia. Uh He told the agency, but the CIA uh, never followed up. Um, One reason could be that for his whole career, the Colombian-born Rocha was an outspoken anti-communist conservative. What he said later was a cover.
7: You know, Greg, I'm thinking on how Rocha has been in custody, we said, since early December. He's only just being formally charged now. Is that unusual? Any idea why?
28: Yes, his arraignment was postponed twice, which was kind of surprising. Uh, We've had some legal experts who suggest that his, his lawyers may be in discussions with the government about a possible plea agreement. His lawyer wouldn't comment on that today following the arraignment. She also wouldn't talk about uh, an incident that happened here where Rocha apparently transferred the titles of four condom units he owns in Miami to his wife in January. That was more than a month after he was arrested. And if he's found guilty on these charges and the government begins forfeiture proceedings against him, it's not clear those transfers are going to stand up.
7: That is. NPR's Greg Allen in Miami. Thank you.
28: You're welcome.
0: You're
8: listening to All Things Considered.
0: This is 90.9 WBUR. A New York judge has ordered Donald Trump to pay more than $355 million dollars for inflating his wealth on financial statements. Follow the news tonight here at 90.9 WBUR. Film Buffs, join us at City Space Wednesday, March 6th, a few days before the Oscar Awards, for the conversation with New Yorker writer Michael Shulman about his book, Chronicling The Last Century of Scandals, Drama, and Unrevealed Secrets from Hollywood's Biggest Night. Tickets are at WBUR.org slash events.
20: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Scrub-A-Dub Car Wash. Family-owned since 1966, offering Scrub-A-Dub Unlimited, designed to keep your car Scrub-A-Dub clean anytime you want. Boston's major sports teams are off tonight.
0: The Bruins will be on garden ice tomorrow afternoon to host the LA Kings. Celtics are off for the NBA's all-star break. The game is Sunday evening in Indianapolis. Forward Jason Tatum of the Celts will be in the starting lineup. In the forecast, increasing clouds overnight tonight. Looks pretty beautiful out there right now. Should be windy tonight, down around the mid-20s. Tomorrow, making it to the mid-30s, lots of clouds are on, maybe a bit of sun, the remote chance of flurries. And then for Sunday, pretty good amount of sun competing with the clouds. Windy again, temperatures in the mid-30s. This is 90.9 WBUR.
20: We're funded by you, our listeners and by H&H, the Handel & Haydn Society. Harry Christophers returns to lead H&H as Conductor Laureate. Next weekend at Symphony Hall, visit HandelAndHaydn.org. You follow the news every day
32: on WBUR,
20: but how well do you really
32: know the news? It's time to play the puzzle.
3: One across, digital trash. Five letters, south of Ecuador.
32: Play the WBUR crossword puzzle anytime at wbur.org slash fun.
3: Five across, biggest
35: toy maker. Four down, rock concert pit.
32: Play the WBUR crossword free every day at wbur.org slash fun.
7: It's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Juana Summers. This
8: Sunday, hundreds of people are expected to converge on the town of Isleton south of Sacramento, California, all to celebrate one thing, spam.
22: I don't know what to tell you about it. It, it, it just, it tastes good.
7: <laughs> this is the 25th annual Isleton Spam Festival, and this is the guy in charge.
22: My name is Paul Steele. And I am the Spam King.
7: And yes, the Spam King dresses the part.
22: I come dressed like a like a big can of Spam. I have a hat that looks like a can of Spam and a suit that looks like a can of Spam.
7: The festival's roots go back to
8: the late 1990s when a flood hit the town. Steele says everything perishable spoiled, but the Spam was spared.
22: So in the midst of that, we just banded together and started to make lemonade out of eleven lemon and, and uh, see who could make the best Spam dish. And the uh, is derived from that and and is what it is today.
7: On Sunday, there will be a spam toss from one person to another, and they are not throwing the can, to be clear, but the meat
22: itself. It's like an egg toss where, you know, you throw your spam from uh, one person to another, and then they step back 15 feet, and then they throw it back. And and I think last year, the new record was 80 feet. But by the time you get back to 80 feet, it's... uh, A little bit mushy, and it's a little bit slimy, and it's not totally all (laughs) intact.
8: There is also a spam eating contest, but no
7: hands allowed. Uh, And a spam cooking contest, too, where the canned ham and pork product features in truly like all sorts of dishes.
22: What these guys come up with is amazing. I mean, I've seen everything from spam ice cream, spam cupcakes, spam jerky. They have burritos or Spam tamales.
7: Steele says his favorite dish from years past is actually the Spam cheesecake.
22: It is the same texture of a regular cheesecake you would buy at a store. There's a glaze on top. There was caramelized Spam in it. It's white, but it's the exact same texture as a regular cheesecake. Actually, kind of sounds good.
8: I am less convinced. The festival is free to attend, though there is a small fee to participate in some of the events, which Steele says helps raise money for school supplies
7: for the local PTA. As for Steele, after more than a decade as the Spam King, he says he's ready to pass on the crown or the Spam Can hat, as it were.
22: I'm going to be turning over the reins this year to uh, another person here in Ialton, California. So uh, there's a time to retire, you know, and... I think it's time to go.
7: May we all know when it is time to go to the Ileton Spam Festival, that is. Totem is Mexico's
8: official submission for this year's Oscars. It is the second movie by 41-year-old filmmaker Lila Aviles, who made the film as a gift for her daughter. Aviles is part of a new generation of filmmakers from Mexico and has quickly become one of the brightest stars of international cinema. Totem opens in American theaters this month, and NPR's Isabella Gomez-Sarmiento has the story.
38: Director Lila Aviles uses the same word to describe how she raised her daughter and how she learned to make films. I was always kind of playing. I was playful. Aviles became a mom at a young age and she didn't go to film school. Instead, she worked in theater, in wardrobe, in production. And she says she always trusted her instincts, both as a mom and as an artist. (laughs) Her latest film, Totem, drops viewers into a single afternoon in a family home in Mexico City. The warm, kind of chaotic house, full of art, pets, people, is viewed through the eyes of seven-year-old Sol.
17: She's quietly watching her family prepare for her father's birthday party. It's a unique day in this girl's life and in this family and friend's structure. Sol's father is sick with cancer. This birthday will be his last.
38: As she wanders through the house, Sol's sense of grief is already clear. Film critic Carlos Aguilar wrote in the Los Angeles Times that Totem is an understated miracle.
36: This young protagonist is asking the questions about death and mortality and what happens after we're gone.
38: At one point, Sol asks Siri when the world will end. Totem is Aviles' love letter to her teenage daughter, who also lost her father when she was close to her character Sol's age. Aguilarza's Aviles honors both Sol's innocence and emotional maturity.
36: What Lila Aviles does brilliantly is that she allows for these young protagonists to sort of like fully engage with those emotions, and I think that's one of the ways that she manages not to make it overly sentimental or predictable in an emotional way.
38: But Totem does not linger on this Mexican family's darkness. It's also about childhood, beauty, and nature. Scenes of Sol's grandfather snipping a bonsai tree are interspersed with shots of insects crawling in the garden. Director Lila Aviles sees all these moments as deeply connected
17: to the human story. Birds fly with this magnetism that we don't understand, no? Or sharks travel <laughs> in water with this also magnetism. And I guess we also have it, no? As humans, animals, and we forget, no? And it's not like, oh, she's mystical, no? Because she's Mexican, no, not at all, no? It's only this sensibility, no? That you, you can feel some connection and that's it. Totem is Aviles' second feature. 2018's The Chambermaid,
38: also Mexico's submission for the Oscars, follows a young woman cleaning rooms at a luxury hotel in Mexico City. It's a stark commentary on class and gender in Aviles' rapidly gentrifying hometown. Camarista, buenos dias. Both films hone in on womanhood in Mexican and Latin American cultures. Aviles follows her characters as they go about their daily tasks, bathing a child cleansing
17: a house of evil spirits and vacuuming no, no, a carpet.
19: No, 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 no. Enseñe,
17: they don't need to be a heroine to be a heroine, no? They are normal day-to-life heroines. Aviles represents a new wave of rising
38: filmmakers from Mexico, says critic Carlos Aguilar.
36: It's kind of undeniable that In the last decade, at least, some of the more important films that come out of Mexico have been directed by women.
38: That's partially thanks to government funding that has greatly bolstered the country's film industry.
36: The government support of the last few decades really kind of diversified the voices that were telling stories. And by that token, you know, we started getting more stories from, you know, women's perspectives.
38: Aviles says she grew up in a matriarchal family, and so centering women is natural for her. But she says she writes what she knows. And what's important for her is to move away from the on screen stereotypes of Mexico violence, poverty, and trauma. And
17: obviously, it's a part of what is happening in Mexico, but I also love the other part of Mexico that can be super loving, no? There are so hardworking people. And I try to bring that love to Totem, no? I guess that. For me, the totem is love. Love for her culture, for her camera, and for her daughter.
38: Isabella Gomez-Sarmiento, NPR News.
7: This
21: is All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from the NPR Wine Club, where members can explore wines from around the world with stories behind each one and bottles inspired by favorite NPR shows, available to adults 21 or older, nprwineclub.org. From the estate of Joan B. Kroc, whose bequest serves as an enduring investment in the future of public radio and seeks to help NPR produce programming that meets the highest standards of public service in journalism and cultural expression, and from Fisher Investments. Fisher is committed to helping clients stay on track to reach their financial goals and enjoy a comfortable retirement. Fisherinvestments.com. Investing in securities involves the risk of loss. This is NPR.
0: And this is 90.9 WBUR. Should have increasing clouds tonight. Windy's still down around the mid-20s. Tomorrow should make it to the mid-30s with lots of clouds, maybe a little bit of sunshine, the remote chance of some flurries. And then for Sunday should be a nice day, mostly sunny, some clouds around, windy again, temperatures in the mid-30s again. And then President's Day Monday should be sunny with some gusty winds around, highs about 40.
30: I'm WBUR arts and culture reporter Cristela Guerra, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA tisbury and 89one WBUH WBUR-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.
0: A New York judge imposes a withering fine on Donald Trump today of more than 350 million dollars for inflating his net worth to get favorable treatment from banks and insurers. The fine effectively eviscerates the business empire Trump has built over the decades. It's Friday, February 16th, and this is All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. That story is coming up. Also around the world, people are remembering Russian opposition leader Lexi Navalny who died in prison at the age of 47. Navalny was an outspoken critic of Russian President Vladimir Putin. He's a hero, he's a symbol of Russian resistance. Heroes don't die, heroes motivate us to do more things. And Israeli troops have taken over a main hospital in southern Gaza looking for Hamas fighters and the remains of Israeli hostages. It's 6.01.
3: Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Windsor Johnston. A federal judge in New York City is ordering former President Donald Trump to pay nearly $355 million for civil fraud. The ruling delivers a crushing blow to the Republican presidential frontrunner. The court had already determined that Trump falsely manipulated his net worth. Now, in addition to the financial penalties, the judge has also banned Trump from serving as an officer or director of any New York corporation for a period of three years. President Biden says he's outraged and blames Russian President Vladimir Putin for the death of the country's opposition leader, Alexei Navalny.
16: Putin is responsible for Navalny's death. Putin is responsible. What has happened to Navalny is yet more proof of Putin's brutality. No one should be fooled, not in Russia, not at home, not anywhere in the world.
3: World leaders are also expressing shock and outrage over the death of Navalny, yet questions still linger over the timing and cause of death. NPR's Charles Maines reports from Moscow.
9: A video posted online by the independent Russian Soda News Service showed Navalny in good spirits and joking with judges as he appeared by video feed from prison for a court hearing on Thursday. Twenty-four hours later, Russia's Federal Penitentiary Service announced the opposition leader was dead. In a brief statement, the prison service said medics had been unable to resuscitate Navalny after he fell unconscious following a walk in a prison yard. Navalny's family has voiced skepticism, noting the news came from government sources, but that Russian President Vladimir Putin bore direct responsibility of true, Putin made no mention of his longtime critic during public meetings Friday. Charles Maines, NPR News, Moscow.
3: Concerns about President Biden's age are putting pressure on Vice President Kamala Harris as she and Biden seek a second term in the White House. NPR's Sarah McCammon reports Republican presidential hopeful Nikki Haley is highlighting those worries on the
14: campaign trail. Campaigning in South Carolina last weekend, Haley predicted, without evidence, that Harris will replace Biden. It's either going to be me or it's going to be Kamala Harris. (laughs) Andre Marie Hancock, a political scientist at Ohio State University, says Haley is drawing on a drumbeat of attacks on Harris in right-wing circles.
22: She's using some dog whistles
7: to actually counteract dog whistles that could be levied against her.
14: Hancock says the attacks on Harris may offer a preview of general election messages Republicans are likely to use in the months to come. Sarah McCammon, NPR News, Washington.
3: At the close on Wall Street, the Dow lost 145 points. This is NPR News in Washington.
0: And this is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. Congressman Bill Keating is blaming the Russian government for the death of Alexei Navalny. Russian officials say the fierce opponent of Vladimir Putin died today at a penal colony in Siberia. Keating says he hopes Navalny's death is a wake-up call to American politicians who advocate authoritarian rule.
5: I have colleagues that are pro-Putin, that are admiring him, that are saying things, uh, very positive things about him, and that's the direction it should go here. I hope that some of those words stick in their throats today
0: Keating is the ranking member of a House Foreign Affairs Subcommittee. He says the U.S. must now send a message to Putin by passing an aid package for Ukraine. That sentiment was echoed today by Congresswoman and Minority Whip Catherine Clark. She said on social media that is now is not the time for us to waver in our support of Ukraine. Stewart Healthcare is trying to sell some of its assets, but still the company may not be able to continue operating all nine of its Massachusetts hospitals. That's according to officials who have met with Stewart executives to talk about its plans. Here's WBUR's Deborah Becker.
1: Congressman Stephen Lynch says he met with Stewart executives yesterday and they told him they have an infusion of money to keep some hospitals running. But he told WBUR's Radio Boston the company did not deviate from its initial statements to his staff that Stewart will leave Massachusetts.
28: That statement that they intend to exit
5: the Massachusetts health care market has not been retracted. Stewart is, is trying to find buyers or find other configurations that will allow these hospitals to continue in operation.
1: Stewart has said it does not plan to close any Massachusetts hospitals, but there could be a transfer of ownership. State officials are monitoring patient care at Stewart Hospitals. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Deborah Becker.
0: A jury today convicted the man accused of killing a Weymouth police officer and a bystander in 2018. Emmanuel Lopes was found guilty today of killing Weymouth Police Sergeant Michael Chesna, and 77-year-old Vera Adams. This is the second jury to hear the case. The first ended in a mistrial after three weeks of deliberations. Lopes will be sentenced next month. And the T said that it has removed eight speed restrictions from the northern end of the red line during construction earlier this month. The line had been shut down between Alewife and Harvard for 10 days. The T said today that in that time, it installed about a half mile of new track, replaced signals, and inspected tunnels. The Green Line is going to be shut down Tuesday between Copley and Babcock Street, Cleveland Circle and Brookline Hills. That closure will last until the 8th of March. Tonight, look for lots of clouds around, temperatures in the mid-20s. Tomorrow, making it to the mid-30s, lots of clouds again, maybe a little bit of sunshine, also the remote chance of flurries. Sunday, some sunshine, mostly sunshine, in fact. Some clouds around, windy again, temperatures in the mid-30s. And then President's Day on Monday should be sunny, windy, with highs about 40 degrees. It's 6.07.
6: Support for NPR comes from NPR stations. Other contributors include the Kauffman Foundation. Providing access to opportunities that help people achieve financial stability, upward mobility, and economic prosperity, regardless of race, gender, or geography. Kaufman.org.
7: From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Mary Louise Kelly.
8: And I'm Juana Summers. Alexei Navalny, the outspoken critic of Russian President Vladimir Putin and his brand of totalitarian rule, has died at the age of 47. He was last seen yesterday during a court appearance where he appeared to be in good spirits in video posted by the independent Russian news agency SOTA.
7: According to the Russian Penitentiary Service, Navalny died in the penal colony where he was held after losing consciousness following a walk. In a few minutes, we'll have reactions from President Biden and the United Nations to his death. First, from Moscow, NPR's Charles Maines has this look back at Navalny's legacy.
9: Alexei Navalny was often called President Vladimir Putin's fiercest critic and with good reason.
2: Alexei Navalny!
9: more than a decade, Navalny built a national following with impassioned campaigns that channeled public outrage over corruption and violence in the Kremlin, and promoted a vision that Russians could one day live differently.
10: He is uh, the only real politician in the Russian political uh, field, trying uh, to struggle for power.
9: That's Andrei Kolesnikov of the Carnegie-Russia Eurasia Center speaking in 2020. Kolesnikov has said Navalny stood out from a crowded group of opposition figures by reducing Russian politics to a simple dichotomy. Putin versus Navalny. Navalny versus Putin. A lawyer by training, Navalny first rose to prominence as an online muckraker who exposed corruption schemes among Russia's state-owned companies. He soon emerged as the breakout political star of anti-government street protests in 2011 as Putin was eyeing a third presidential term.
27: Who is
9: Navalny's powerful voice, good looks, and readiness to laugh off threats and jail time won him a huge following, especially among younger Russians. In 2013, he took almost a third of the vote in the Moscow mayoral election, despite being blacklisted by state media and hounded by prosecutors. Kolesnikova says the Kremlin took note.
10: And after that, Kremlin doesn't allow Navalny to participate in any legal activity, in any elections.
9: Instead, Navalny sought political legitimacy from the outside in. He expanded his presence nationally, opening field offices with his anti-corruption foundation and launching a sleek online media operation via social media, and YouTube in particular.
12: In 2018,
9: he led a shadow campaign to challenge Putin for the presidency, banned from the ballot, but presenting a starkly different vision for Russia, as he told NPR in an interview at the time.
0: It's simple. I want to live in a normal
13: country and refuse to accept any talk about Russia being doomed to being a bad, poor, or servile country. I want to live here, and I can't tolerate the injustice that for many people has become routine.
9: Navalny's informal style and fondness for pop culture were central to his appeal in a sharp contrast to the Kremlin leader 24 years his senior. When Putin tapped into older Russians' grievances over the demise of the Soviet Union, Navalny channeled a younger generation's hope that Russia could break free from that repressive past, says independent analyst Fyodor krushin For them, Putin is the old man that they're sick of, because he's been on television their entire lives. And that's why they gravitated towards Navalny. He was younger, more energetic, and more reflected their worldview. Putin famously never mentioned Navalny's name in public, referring to him dismissively with terms like that blogger or the person to which you're referring. Even a state media propagandist relentlessly attacked Navalny as a fascist and a Western stooge. Meanwhile, Navalny led investigations seen by millions of viewers on YouTube, excoriated Kremlin insiders for corruption, making powerful enemies along the way.
14: Russia's most prominent opposition leader, has been poisoned.
9: In 2020, Navalny collapsed aboard a flight in Siberia, a victim of a poisoning attack. He was on a plane flying back to Moscow when he fell unconscious. He survived, barely, thanks to medical treatment in Germany. From there, he also launched another investigation, this time uncovering the identity of the FSB assassins that had tried to kill him using the nerve agent Novichok. It all sounded like something out of a movie, and soon there was one.
13: And the Oscar goes to...
23: Navalny.
9: Navalny, the documentary, took an Oscar in 2023. By then, Navalny was Putin's most famous prisoner. He'd returned home two years earlier, insisting a Russian politician who hoped to leave had to live in Russia, only to be sentenced to decades in prison on a slew of suspect charges. Yet even from jail, he remained a relevant voice and a thorn in the Kremlin's side. From behind bars, he released his most popular video, a film that took viewers inside a secret palace on the Black Sea that Navalny claimed had been built by Putin for more than $1
15: billion.
9: And when Putin announced the full-scale invasion of Ukraine in February of 2022, Navalny castigated the Kremlin leader as a madman dragging the country backwards once again. Our miserable, exhausted motherland needs to be saved, said Navalny in social media posts released through his lawyers. All it took, he argued, was for more Russians to raise their voices and say they wanted something different. It was the latest distillation of Navalny's vision for Russia, at once simple and stubbornly out of reach in an era characterized by repression and fear. Navalny called it the happy Russia of the future. Charles Maines, NPR News, Moscow.
7: The news of Navalny's death came as a shock to many around the world. President Biden says he will hold Russia responsible for the death of the Kremlin critic. And Pierre Michel Kellerman
4: has more. President Biden says Navalny was everything Russian President Vladimir Putin is not.
16: He was brave. He was principled. He was dedicated to building a Russia where the rule of law existed and of where it applied to everybody. Navalny believed in that Russia that Russia, he knew it was a cause worth fighting for, and obviously even dying for.
4: Navalny's wife Yulia was at a security conference in Munich when Russian prison authorities said her husband had died. I want Putin and all those who surround him to know that they will be held responsible for what they did to my country, my family, and my husband, she said, urging the world to unite and fight what she called this evil. The UN Secretary-General is calling for a credible investigation, and the UN Human Rights Office says Russia should stop persecuting its critics. One human rights activist in exile, Natalia Arnaud, says she will have a hard time speaking about Navalny in past tense.
7: He is a hero. Uh, he is a symbol of um, Russian resistance. Heroes don't die.
17: Heroes motivate us to do more things.
4: She was speaking at the U.S. Institute of Peace along with other Russian human rights activists who point out that Navalny always said that his death would be a sign that his movement is strong and Putin's regime is afraid. Michelle Kellerman, NPR News, the State Department. Senator
8: Lindsey Graham has long been one of the Senate's most vocal defense hawks. For years, he was a fixture at the annual Munich Security Conference. But this year, Graham decided to skip that meeting for the first time in his career to go to the border. Here he is earlier today in Eagle Pass, Texas, with his fellow South Carolina Republican Senator Tim
18: Scott. Until we regain control of our border, it's going to be very difficult to help other countries. So the national security problems associated with a southern border in disarray to me deserve my time and attention.
8: Senators Scott and Graham spoke with NPR congressional correspondent Claudia Grisales just after their border visit. Claudia joins us now from Eagle Pass. Hi there. Hi, Juana. So, Claudia, start by just explaining to us. I mean, Graham and Scott are two senators who do not come from a border state. Why did they feel the need to travel there to Eagle Pass today?
19: Right. It was such a split screen to have them here at the border while many of their colleagues headed to Europe. Eagle Pass has become a frequent stopping point for Republican lawmakers taking trips here. Texas Governor Greg Abbott was here today for one of his regular press conferences. And earlier this week, Senators Graham and Scott Both voted against a bipartisan border security bill and a national security aid bill that would have directed help to Ukraine, Israel and other partners and Graham's vote in particular was a major departure for him. So was his decision to skip the Munich conference for this border visit. He says he's been there every year since it got started, and Tim Scott himself was going to be there for the first time this year. But they both said that the focus needs to be on home right now, meaning the border.
18: Don't be surprised if the American people look inward when their country's on fire. You know, it's pretty hard to penetrate the idea that we're on fire here at home. The economy is, inflation's high, crime's up, the border's broken.
19: Yes, and there you hear Graham talking about the crisis that he and Scott saw in person today. And so there's a significant shift in the Republican Party when it comes to national security. Some would argue it's isolationist, and that's backed by former President Trump. Graham has been an advocate for Ukraine funding and a very vocal critic of Vladimir Putin. Many Democrats criticize his absence from the Munich conference this week as a sign of loyalty to Trump. And what does Senator Graham have to say about that? Well, he said he's making a statement by being at the border. He believes America needs to be critical in terms of its stability for the world. And he also mentioned Alexei Navalny, the Russian opposition leader who we understand died today. And he says he believes Navalny was murdered by Putin and that Putin is a war criminal. But he also went on to say that the breakdown of the border is larger than any threat he sees from Europe today.
8: Claudia, you mentioned former President Trump earlier, and I just want to ask you, how much is he a factor here?
19: He is a huge factor. I've asked both senators about this, and both said they've spoken with Trump recently before this trip, and it was really interesting to hear the answer from Scott, who himself was very recently a presidential candidate for Republicans, and he's since dropped out of the race and endorsed Trump.
16: President Trump just happens to be right. The, he reinforces the position of the American people.
19: And Graham says he disagrees when Trump says Congress should not do anything on this until after the election. He's still holding out hope for a solution, but it's a very difficult situation and a huge reminder of what influence Trump has on the Republican Party to this day.
8: NPR congressional correspondent Claudia Grisala reporting from Eagle Pass, Texas. Claudia, thank you. Thank you.
0: You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. In the last five years, more self-storage facilities have been popping up all over the country. What's behind the trend coming up in business news? It starts in about 10 minutes here at 90.9 WBUR. The Dow fell nearly four-tenths of a percent today, ending a five-week win streak. S&P lost nearly a half percent, still closed over 5,000, and the Nasdaq dropped more than eight-tenths of a percent. Boston city planners are giving the green light for developers to replace Star Market near Fenway Park with an 11-story building. The Boston Planning and Development Agency yesterday signed off on plans to turn the grocery store and the neighboring abandoned gas station on Boylston Street into a lab building. Plans include a spot that's eventually slated to become a Boston Public Library branch. The Star Market is moving
31: to a new location nearby. The forecast is coming up. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Xfinity Internet with the Xfinity 10G Network, so everyone at home can be online, even at peak hours. Xfinity from Comcast. The future starts now. And Global Arts Live with the Flamenco Festival in Boston, March 2nd through 13th. Experience the passion, power, and beauty. Tickets at globalartslive.org. Some clouds should move in tonight, a
0: dry night, but a cold one, temperatures in the mid-20s. The wind should feel make it feel a lot colder though. Tomorrow, partly to mostly cloudy, temperatures in the mid-30s. Sunday, mainly sunny, staying in the mid-30s. And then President's Day Monday should be bright, a little bit milder, close to 40 degrees. 35 degrees now in Boston. This is 90.9 WBUR, it's 621.
21: Support for NPR comes from this station and from the Kauffman Foundation providing access to opportunities that help people achieve financial stability, upward mobility, and economic prosperity, regardless of race, gender, or geography. Kaufman.org, And from the Walton Family Foundation, working to create access to opportunity for people and communities by tackling tough social and environmental problems. More information is at waltonfamilyfoundation.org. This is NPR. This is All Things Considered
8: from
7: NPR News. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Barry Louise Kelly. Israeli troops have taken over a main hospital in southern Gaza looking for Hamas fighters and the remains of Israeli hostages. This, as a potential Israeli operation, looms in the most crowded part of Gaza. Let's get the latest from NPR's Daniel Estrin in Tel Aviv. And Daniel, start with just what we know about what the situation is at this hospital in southern Gaza.
11: Yeah, this is the Nasser Medical Complex in the city of Khan Yunis. Israeli troops have taken over that hospital in the last few days. It's a hospital that NPR's producer Anas Baba visited just two months ago. He saw families crowding the hospital grounds there. They were sheltering there. And now Gaza health officials are saying that Israeli troops have evacuated many patients and staff to a building uh, on the grounds that did not have proper medical equipment. They say that hospital generators stopped functioning, five ICU patients they claim have died because their oxygen ran out. And Doctors Without Borders says the hospital was shelled and that uh, people inside were killed and wounded. NPR's producer Abu Bakr Bashir uh, happened to speak with an ambulance crew member today from Gaza's health ministry. He's been in touch with his colleagues at the hospital who said Israeli bulldozers had raised an area of the hospital complex. Uh, he said a main sewage line had been hit and sewage had flooded inside the hospital. He also said... Babies had been relocated to a building that didn't have incubators. And our producer was speaking to this ambulance crew member, Ahmed al Astal, as he was driving in an ambulance in the city of Khan Yunus. And suddenly, on the phone, they had to turn around. And here's what it sounded like.
22: <laughs> So there he's
11: telling his colleague, go back, go back, go back. The army is there. There are injured people there.
7: it oh, sounds just absolutely chaotic. Tell me more about the why. What? Why does Israel say it needs to take over this hospital?
11: Well, Israel's army says it is looking for Hamas operatives in the hospital and looking for the bodies of Israeli hostages. Uh, that might be held there Israel says it has not yet found any remains of hostages it says hostages had been held there in the past Um, Israel also says it's found medicines with the hostages names on them Uh, now Israel says it is not forcing people to leave this hospital it says it's delivered fuel and a new generator to the hospital so that it can continue providing medical care I was at a briefing today with Israel's defense minister, Yoav Gallant, who spoke about this operation at the hospital. He said more than 7,000 Palestinians have left the hospital grounds he says troops have arrested about 70 militants in the hospital, including a few dozen he said participated in Hamas's October 7th attack on Israel. But Mary Louise, this is a pattern. Um, we see Israel taking over main hospitals as troops sweep from north to south Gaza. Mm. Um, Israel says Hamas you know, bases itself in hospitals.
7: Daniel, just briefly update us on where things stand with Israel's plans to send troops into Rafah. That is, of course, where more than half of the people in Gaza are sheltering What's the update on how likely it is when it would happen?
11: President Biden today said he doesn't expect a major operation there while there are talks ongoing for a temporary ceasefire and a potential uh, deal to release Hamas's hostages. But it might happen eventually. Israel's defense minister today told us that Israel is thoroughly planning this operation there. And Egypt is worried. A security official there told us that Egypt is building a buffer zone to contain a potential influx of Palestinians Mm -hmm. if they burst through the border.
7: NPR's Daniel Estrin in Tel Aviv. Thank you. You're welcome. The
8: Department of Veterans Affairs is scrambling in the wake of a debacle in its home loan program that left many veterans unable to pay their mortgages. After NPR broke the story last year, the VA halted thousands of foreclosures across the country, and now lawmakers are leaning on the VA to fix what's broken because many veterans and their families are still in trouble. Correspondents Quill Lawrence and Chris Arnold report.
6: The director of the VA's loan program, John Bell, was on Capitol Hill yesterday trying to explain how the VA is going to fix this mess.
23: First and foremost, we are looking for a solution to be able to help 40,000 borrowers uh, uh, stay off foreclosure.
6: But
24: lawmakers on the House Veterans Affairs Committee got frustrated with Bell's answers. Mr. Mr.
5: Bell, you didn't answer that question. And you're really
24: starting to irritate me.
5: And as my friend the chairman said, we need answers today.
24: That was Wisconsin Republican Derek Van Orden and California Democrat Mike Levin, who both praised the home loan as maybe the nation's most important veterans benefit. The VA home loan is part of the GI Bill. And since the end of World War II, it's been giving veterans a leg up into the middle class, like Iraq war vet Edmund Garcia. Uh,
25: I did four years uh, before I was shot and wounded, but it was actually hit me an ankle and uh, ended my career.
6: Garcia is first generation American. His parents are from Honduras. He was the first in his family to go to college and joining the military was supposed to be part of that American dream story. His injury wasn't life-threatening, but he's had 10 surgeries in the years since.
25: You know, aside from the chronic pain, uh, I'm, I'm doing okay. You know, I have my good days and I have my bad days.
6: Garcia and his wife were able to buy a house for themselves and their four kids in Rocheron, Texas, with a loan backed by the VA. When they lost work during COVID, a VA program allowed them to defer mortgage payments. But then the VA scuttled its own program while tens of thousands of vets were still in the middle of it. Vets like Garcia got stranded. Suddenly he owed all the missed payments at once, upwards
24: of $20,000.
25: I'm like, how am I going to come up with $22,000? You know, what am I supposed to do? I got four kids. Your options say here that I can do a short sale or deed in lieu. I'm going to lose my home. I said, what am I going to do with my kids?
24: Garcia says he was having this conversation with his mortgage company while he was in his car waiting to pick up his 16-year-old daughter from school.
25: I deal with PTSD. I deal with anxiety. And, you know, my heart is beating through my chest. And by the time my daughter is in the car, I have a panic attack right there in front of her. And she's asking, Dad, are you okay?" The VA says it's working on a fix.
6: That's what the hearing was about this week. It says it's going to roll out a new affordable loan modification option for the vets who got left facing foreclosure. But in the meantime, veterans tell NPR that their mortgage companies have been pushing them into much more costly loan modifications with today's higher interest rates.
24: And that feels like a bait and switch. The vets were told before they took part in this forbearance program that their payments wouldn't go up. Garcia's old mortgage rate was 2.4 percent. Now his lender wants him to accept a 7.1 percent loan, which would raise his payments by $700 a month.
25: So this is my my dilemma, is that you guys have put a financial gun to my head saying sign this or else. That's, the, that, that's what you're doing.
6: Congressman Mike Levin asked about that exact problem at the hearing.
5: What if the veterans already signed up for a, a higher interest rate loan modification? What are you going to do to make these veterans whole?
23: So that that is why we were, uh, as another part of the loss mitigation waterfall, we wanted to place VASPA. The-
6: that was the VA's John Bell, and the long and short of it is that the VA is still working on it. Meanwhile, Edmund Garcia
24: just wants the deal he signed up for. They said
25: that they were going to keep my payments comparable to what I was paying, and I want them to honor it. They told veterans that they were going to help them in their time of need. I want them to honor it. Chris Arnold, and Quill Lawrence, NPR News. This
0: is NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR. A New York judge has ordered Donald Trump to pay more than $355 million for inflating his wealth on financial statements. Tomorrow morning on WBUR, how the ruling could affect Trump's personal bank account and affect him politically. The news and wait, wait at 10 o'clock. Listen when you wake up. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Leslie
26: University. Make a difference as an artist, educator or counselor with a degree from Leslie University. Get started today at leslie.edu.